Greetings, constant listeners. It's your boy, Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman. Now, you're probably wondering, Mike, what's up? Why aren't we on the mile? Well, look, we're bumping things back a bit. So expect to hear our full dissection of Frank Darabont's The Green Mile next week. But here's the good news. What you're about to hear is our four-part rewatch of Mick Garris's The Stand, which we recorded way, way back in April and May. You know, when the pandemic just started and we had no clue what was in store for us. Here's the thing, though. While we shared the first part with you, the three other chapters were exclusive to the Barons, our Patreon page. Now, in anticipation of CBS All Access's new miniseries, The Stand, and really because this is the season of giving, we've decided to unlock all four just for you. My Life for You? Yes, our four-part miniseries, Just for You. Consider it an extra-long sweet treat that will keep you entertained for a few long days and maybe even a few pleasant nights. Happy holidays. And please, for the love of God, wear a mask. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and we're here with another week of discussing a global pandemic as it relates to our real lives and to the work of Stephen King, specifically in a little book called Night Surf. Just kidding. Uh, it's called The Stand. The Night Surf. The, the Night Surf is a prequel, though. Mm-hmm. Which I is believe was written before the book, the stand was actually finished. So, oh yeah, mm-hmm. it was like one of his early, uh, one of his early stories. Um, well, before we get started, uh, I just want to thank you because if you're listening to this, that means you are a Patreon subscriber. We deeply, deeply appreciate it, uh, especially during these hard times, and we hope that you enjoy this episode and. Um, Uh, Yeah, if you haven't yet, I imagine you have because you're devoted fans, but please do follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, Leave us a nice review on iTunes if you haven't yet because, you know, every now and then people pop in with those one-star reviews and, man, they just ruin our days, don't they, guys? They yeah, do. it's probably the worst thing I'm going through right now, I think, is our one-star views. Yeah. It's definitely a plague on the country right now, uh, <laughs> I think. Sorry, that was bad. Um, anyways, We're going to get a one-star review ourselves. for that, for bringing <laughs> for up that. politics. <laughs> that'll be a fun one. That's like a funny one-star review. <laughs> um, so I'm Rockin' Riddle Colburn, and who is joining me from Mike's apartment? <laughs> this is Michael Mick Garris Rothman. Um <laughs> Tired, uh, bemused, uh, but excited <laughs> to talk excited about. Excited to talk stand. To talk stand. I've watched this chapter twice. So, um, yeah. What do there you mean go. twice? Well, I watched it on like Sunday and then I put it on as a background and watched today when I was working. So, um, many, ah, many, I, I got cool. to, I got to meet, uh, Tom and, uh, and <laughs> I got to see Tom and Nick's, uh, meet cute twice. So how about that? <laughs> um, uh, and who is joining me from the great state of Texas? 
Oh, man. Uh, well, I'm tempted to say it's Dan Stu Arnett Caffrey because... <laughs> no, Stu Redmond. Stu Arnett. Stu Arnett. Stu Arnett. Stu Arnett. Um, no, I'll say... Um, I'll say Dan Dick Ellis Caffrey. I don't even know if he's in the miniseries. <laughs> the great Dick is. Ellis. Is he? Is Dick Ellis in the miniseries? Or, I, I, I confuse Chad Norris, Brad Kitchener, and Dick Ellis. Um, I know Brad Kitchener's in it. They say his name at one point. I, uh, I thought that... I thought that uh, Mick Garris himself played one of those guys, but I looked up and, and Mick Garris apparently plays Henry Dunbarton, who's the guy who goes, "We will stew in, in episode three. So <laughs> wait, we gave, will stew is is that, Garris? Well, in, well, in the book, in the book, Henry Dunbarton says that because it's like, oh, Stu acknowledged Henry Dunbarton, who who is jolly as ever or something, and um, yeah, but I, so I don't know in the book that's who says it, but I don't know if it's actually it's probably not Mick Garris to say that. That'd be pretty funny if it was. <laughs> Uh, you'll find out why we talk about this line probably in the next episode. Uh, uh, it is I can't it resist. is it is an off quoted line, um, but we'll we'll get to it when when we get to the Boulder Free Zone, which uh, we are not there quite yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then who is joining us? Uh, another Dan, also in Chicago. Well, this is Dan Diddly Dadly Pictures, and they're all rated X Fleer. <laughs> Nice. Hey guys, thanks for having me on the episode, and uh, shout out to all the Patreon subscribers. Yeah, uh, much appreciated. Good to have really you excited. on. We talked about you last week. Jan. I heard that, yeah. yeah. It's, it's great to hear your name mentioned on a podcast. <laughs> I probably went back and re-listened multiple times. Um, I will say that it was it would have been really cool if you and Dan, having come back from that party at 2 a.m., had managed to watch all four parts of the miniseries. Yeah, I don't know what we were thinking. It, it was We were already I don't drinking, think... it was... Two in the Did morning, we get through like, part hey, one? Plus, I don't even think we got through part I, one. I think we, we all just, just passed out. Passed out, and but it's kind of cool because then you know by watching it the next day we got to you know Mike dropped in to see Bill, and it was just such a weird way that that movie kind of brought us all together. Yeah. You know, like when I was there in the apartment going to get Bill, I was thinking, God, I really want Moe's or Momo's. I got to decide which is one is a burrito place, the other is a, a, a pizza place. So that's all I was thinking about, not realizing that in almost 20 years later, I would be thinking about that day and that moment (laughs) on a podcast. See, when I met you, I was like, I feel like I'm going to host a podcast with that guy someday, (laughs) even though I don't know what a podcast is yet. Wait, there was one place called Moe's and one place called Momo's? Yeah, within within literally, like, you could, like... Get on your hands and knees and crawl between the two of them within three minutes. That's how that's how close it's they were. True, yeah. Yeah. I uh, kissed a waitress who worked at Momo's at a Halloween party. So. Oh wow! Whoa! Check and she didn't even know. And that's uh, why you're, uh, <laughs> you spent three years in jail after. No, I'm just joking. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Momo's. Here's a real question. Um, I know we're saying, oh, who would have known that we would have been hosting a podcast together? What, like, 15 years later, or something like that? Who, but who? The bigger question is, who would have known that we would be hosting a podcast? In the middle of a real life plague, fifteen yeah, years ago, that's actually right? a good life, point. Life is a strange way of sneaking up on you. <laughs> <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. Um, what a Dan poetic Flieger, way of putting you, it. How, how did you first uh, encounter the stand, the mini series in your life? Uh, thanks, Rock and Randall. Um, so <laughs> I actually watched it around the time it came out. My friend and I put it on VHS. My friend Bobby Chapman actually, and we were watching it like a day behind, so we could fast forward through commercials. Mm-hmm. And I feel like throughout the years, I would hop on and watch it from start to finish. I always mean to just watch a chapter or two, but then even yesterday, I just ended up watching the whole thing. It's just once it gets going, it's hard to step back. But I've probably seen it seven or eight times at this point. Wow. Yeah, I'm probably around that same number, I'd say. Um, well, cool. Let's. Uh, last week, we talked a lot about um, 
sort of our own anxieties as they were manifesting in the stand. And I think that'll probably happen again this time around. But why don't we start by just kind of talking about where this episode begins, which is with a very sad moment. It's the burial of Franny's dad. Dr. Followed Kelso. by from Scrubs, yes. Yeah. And playing the same character. Uh, <laughs> Scrubs was a prequel to The Stand. And um, if only his medical expertise could have uh, come in handy. I know. But, but, uh, but then we also get the a touching, tender scene between Harold and Franny uh, set to Crowded House's uh, Hey Now, Don't, Hey Now. <laughs> hey Now, Hey Now. Oh, my yeah. Lord. Yeah, my classic, my favorite, my favorite Crowded House jam. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess, like, how do we feel about this as, like, as a big kickoff to part two? Do we feel like it sets the right tone? I think it does. I mean, I, I think that music moment works so well. And I like mm-hmm. that they, and it's not in the, I don't think it's in um, the book either. They talk about hauling the record player out, but they don't listen to that song specifically. But Mike, when uh, we interviewed McGarris, he said that's like his favorite song of all time. Right. Yeah. So it was really important yeah. to get that. And I love too how they mix this tender moment with the ear, all these eerie shots of bodies washing up on, on the shore. Uh, Randall, I have to ask for you because, you know, I look. I'm always Team Cornemic over here. You don't have to convince me he's great, but yeah, I know you don't love his performance. And you too, Mike. And we'll have to figure out how they feel. He feels about Corin in a second. But do you in this scene? Do you like him? Do you appreciate the tenderness that's coming out of him? Is he more endearing to you? I'd say this is probably the best we get of Nemec in this whole thing. Um, uh, because, especially this is just like sort of my favorite, like one of my favorite moments of Harold within the book as well. And it makes me. I, I think actually that. Uh, they do a fairly decent job of capturing um, sort of the weirdness of of being in this state, like two people from the same town, both being immune to this disease. And like, I, I, I don't feel like he delivers the line great, but I'm glad the line is in there where he talks about all the people who bullied him and all the people who treated him like garbage and how they're all gone. He always wished that they would go away or be gone. And now that they are, he wants them back, you know? It's an it's it's a line that I think says a lot about sort of that mentality. Although it does, I will say though, it certainly doesn't feel like Harold doesn't certainly doesn't feel like someone who just watched his entire family die. Uh, and even mm-hmm. Franny has a certain peppiness to her in that scene that uh, doesn't really convey that she just buried her dad in the garden. Yeah, <laughs> that was that's music. that was my initial hey now, hey gripe uh, revisiting this too because I actually think that the whole burial with the father is one of the more harrowing moments of this the novel. Oh yeah. Um, and the way that they, I mean, you're not going to be able to show or, um, get into like the emotional strife of it without actually having some sort of internal monologue of sorts. But, um, the, that whole sequence of where she, they they have to, I mean, King really gets into the nitty gritty details of just like how you'd have to carry the body down the stairs and how it was like really hot because there was no air conditioning and it was like the sun was shifting. So by the time she actually gets out to bury her father, it's like you know, past, uh, past the sundown. So like, she's literally burying her father in, in the grave when it's like nighttime and twilight. And there's something really terrifying about that, that has stuck with me. So like knowing that context, like, um, and then seeing this scene, (laughs) it's like, it's, there's a, there's a cozy element to it because it's like, well, you know, when the city sleeps at night, um, and, and they're the candle and you're by candlelight, there's, there's something, you know, pleasant about it. But, when you think about the fact that she literally did just bury her father, her mother's gone also. And, you know, she is with child that we find out later on. Um, there's something that's missing. Um, and there's a key component of the drama that's missing that 
I think had it been drilled in here a little bit more, I wouldn't have uh, had so many weird um, uh, feelings about Franny going on down, like into later in this chapter about like, eh, she kind of seems a little hammy and coming from like a Hallmark movie or something like that. Cause a lot of her drama later on feels like way too precious and also um, convenient. And this was the time yeah. to like kind of set that up. Um, having said that, love the crowded house inclusion, which uh, we didn't mention this before, but uh, in our interview, or one of our interviews, actually, no, I think it was on actually postmortem. Mick Harris talked about how uh, the original song that King wrote into the script was Beach Boys Fun, 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 which would have been yeah. oh, my God. weird as hell. Um, so I'm glad that that, that, that choice and the pivot to Crowded House happened because it's just. Yeah, just a little oof. too twisted, I yeah. think. What if, it was, uh, what if it was Bad to the Bone instead? <laughs> <laughs> I wish Bad to the Bone played the first time we saw Randall. Although, wait, although oh, I, I guess Bad to the Bone is in uh, Christine, right? That. Isn't that playing the opening credits, yep. Christine? Yeah. Hey, man. So, hey, it's, we, we got, and I th- I'm pretty sure King quotes, you know how he does the songs at the beginning of his chapters. I think he does quote it in uh, the beginning of Christine. Or we also uh, don't forget that Franny was singing Amazing Grace when they open up the chapter two, which yeah. I actually oh, yeah. thought that was a very touching scene when I like during the actual I... burial. Yeah, she goes through and sings the entire song, and I, you know, it's, I don't know, it's so slow and that affected me a lot more um, than the crowded house. But I will say with Harold, uh, they really nailed a lot of these sort of incel internet meme qualities because even the part when she sort of leans into him, he hover hands over yeah. her shoulder for a few <laughs> moments. You know, the famous where like if you're a dork and you take a picture with a girl, you don't put your hand on their shoulder. You kind of keep it. Oh, man. Which is so close yet <laughs> so far. The, the famous, the, the, the iconic it's a, it's a thing. And then, uh, but yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm a fan of his at this part of the movie. You know, he has that, like, misanthropic take of, you're right, he doesn't seem like a guy who just buried his family, but it also seems like he pretty much hated everyone leading w- up to this point. I will say, too, yeah, I, and even even though Coronemic is not an issue for me, um, I, I do. Th- I, it does seem like people have a bigger issue with him once he becomes Hawk in, uh, in parts <laughs> three and four, but I think that's the part that's really hard for uh Yeah, as soon as he shows up in that leather jacket, I just started cracking up. Well, yeah, and then he also has the assless chaps, which is so lame. I was going to say, I agree with Mike, though, with uh, some of the Franny stuff. Uh, Molly Ringwald, it, it seems like maybe they should have done a few more takes because there's some, like, melodrama mm-hmm. and just it does feel like a Hallmark Channel uh you know, made for TV movies, some of the uh, acting choices that are made. She's just not as believable. I remember when I was younger, I thought she was great in it, but with fresh eyes, I'm like, eh, she's maybe one of the weaker spots of the movie. Well, it's even like yeah. some of her word choices are lame. Like when she gets off the motorcycle, and she's like, ah, oh, my fanny. It's like, shut up. Like, that's such a <laughs> I know, I know. Line. That cracked me up. Fanny. Like, what, she sounds like, sound like my like... grandmother. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think also, too, well, and, and I said this the last episode, too, I, I know Molly Ringwald gets a lot of shit. I do think the script actually does, even though I, th- I really like this adaptation as a script overall, I do think it does her a disservice because all of her stuff is directly from the book, but I feel like the, the I guess Stephen King, because he's the one who wrote it, he didn't really include her more strong-willed parts or her funny parts. You know, like I, I do think there's more to her in the book, and it just doesn't get included in, in, in this, especially once we get into the later episodes. I feel yeah. like... She just gets the scenes where she cries a lot yeah. um, and sings the, nas- the national anthem. For what it's worth, to Fleer's point about um, the Amazing Grace scene being touching, Susan watched the first episode with me, and she was kind of on board. And then we wa- started to watch the second episode the next night, and when Franny was stitching up her dad in the in the canvas or whatever, 
Susan was like, I'm out. I don't want to watch this. Like that, that, <laughs> that was like, too, like the, seeing, seeing like old people buried, which she's like, I, I, I don't want to watch any more of this. Whereas the first episode, she was kind of, she's kind of like, oh, this is corny. I don't know if I like it. But then they, it got too real for her. So Where, where's she oh, going to go? She's I trapped that... in the house with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like Did you stitch her to the couch? Uh, to watch <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, like, I, I love out. what you said about the hover hand, uh, flinger, because that's, that's actually, I relate to that because it, when I was a freshman in high school, oh, no. I went to homecoming and I actually didn't even realize I was doing it. But oh, when no. the photos, when the photos came back, like from me and my date, like, you know, me having my, I, my arm was like around her waist, but I wasn't touching her waist. Like it was literally hovering just like oh, no. two inches uh, away from her waist. Cause I was so awkward and so weird about it. And she made fun of me so hard about that for like ages. Like I feel like the, even years later. Wow, yeah. Like they would Biden, <laughs> <laughs> but I was like so scared of like actually touching. And, um, but no, but it's like, I, actually do like those moments with Harold because it does show sort of that the his like you know he's somebody who is so confident in his own intellectuality but when it comes to like intimacy being physical and also you know it, it touches into the vulnerable aspects of his character and his own insecurities which to me are very interesting and part of what makes Harold uh, an interesting character in the book and you know to an extent in the miniseries um uh, and I obviously I'll probably talk about Harold more because he's my favorite character in the book, uh, which is part of why I think I have a problem with Coronemic, just because I think of how much better it could have been played in other uh, iterations. And by I, Josh uh, Gad, by Josh Gad, by oh, Josh Gad. Oh yeah, we. Had I was a talking about that it. yesterday with Sammy. Just like, could you like you know we were making a joke that, that Josh Gad, uh, you know the real the real victim in the coronavirus here. Um, was basically crying like we were t- well no no he was crying on instagram but um we were basically saying like if he was going to be playing harold and i mentioned that to sammy and we just like we were like legit laughing and just like thinking of different <laughs> scenes that he could have been in there like um the like him in the the assless chaps yeah him be... in the motorcycle gear would just be hysterical amazing amazing i i, I need that to happen and i wish they would just redo <laughs> the Josh Boone one. When they come I mean, back. It, might, it might work just because I think when, I think part of the Ashless chaps issue in this is that I don't get the idea in the book, you know, he's supposed to look really silly because mm-hmm. he's wearing like a Hawaiian shirt and he's wearing these assless chaps and his guts kind of hanging over it. And when Stu sees him, he's like, Oh, this guy, you know, this guy's trying too hard. And in this, when they, when they meet Stu and Glenn, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess he's supposed to look kind of silly, but it's, it's kind of not clear. And I'm like, oh, do they think Harold looks like a badass? Like, I don't know. I no, think that's why he looks like <laughs> I think Stu sees right through him. And even when he gets mm-hmm. that little call aside where he's like, can I talk to you for a second? And he's like, listen, man, I, I'm not getting up in your shit. Just but chill, you know? <laughs> but that's so Harold is right. I mean. Well, that's yeah. the funny thing is that the third, you know, it's called the betrayal, the third chapter. And I was like, is the betrayal actually Stu betraying Harold? Ah, <laughs> galaxy brain over here. Yeah. Um, no, I would say that I actually really do like the way that Stu talks. Like, I feel like there's sort of a weird spark in Gary Sinise's uh, smile when he first, like, introduces himself to Harold um, and the way he kind of engages with him when they first meet at Glenn's house. It's There's kind of a, a sweet bemusement on Gary Sinise's part. Like, he senses that this guy doesn't trust him and he's mm-hmm. trying to put him at ease. And, and uh, I, I don't know, I like that was like a, an acting bit that I really quite liked when I was redoing this rewatch. But... But I'd say too about um, about uh, Josh Gad. Her- 
Yeah, Josh. <laughs> yeah, actually, yes. No, we just had a really we had a, just had a dumb bit in the text set where we were getting into various weird <laughs> castings, and I think my favorite one. And we might we might need to share a video of this on uh, on our Facebooks or something. But Justin <laughs> recorded a few videos of what it would look like if George Burns, the late George <laughs> Burns, had played Glenn Bateman <laughs> with a cigar <laughs> in his mouth, and he recited a few of uh, Glenn's more iconic lines <laughs> in very in George Burns. Fashion. I, I think we, so we might to, need to share some of those <laughs> i think we talked about it in uh, like years ago and we when we talked about the sand i think i think someone brought it up or maybe it was just when we were watching it when when Stu first approaches glenn he just comes out of nowhere it's yes. so weird oh no with a huge assault rifle yeah, a giant gun, gun. like you'd yeah. think that, that glenn is gonna have a so fucking hard. heart attack like <laughs> yeah <laughs> Even, I think Glenn even says something as he's like, don't worry, I'm your friend. And he's like, well, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it is such a choice. Like, he, Stu literally has this weird shit-eating grin on his face when he walks up behind Glenn. <laughs> so and he's crazy. holding this gigantic assault rifle. And he's just like, hey, Hoss. <laughs> <laughs> what, if they just, what if they started this second episode, just deviate from the book, he just walks up and then blows Glenn's head off. Like, just a, <laughs> a total heel turn for Stu. It's like, oh. Uh, <laughs> What you what you painting there, old timer? He splatters his brain on the canvas. He's like, uh, he's like, uh, I hated the ma- I hated the mouse in the motorcycle movies. Um, I love that. Oh, he, man. He's, uh, like, he's like, he's like, I know we're gonna meet Ralph Brentner, but without Ralph the mouse. From, uh, I the the thing I really love about these scenes, though, the early on ones, is um, they they remind me of uh, <laughs> this is such a weird association. But did you ever read the Boxcar Children growing up? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's it. like I, I love like when people are left to their own devices and they kind of have to have that sort of survival mentality within with with limited means. And these little moments in the miniseries uh, really capture that feeling of like the world being shut down and you are left to your own devices. Like when you see like you know Glenn laying on his hammock or um, you know Stu figuring out how a way to like uh, cool off the beer or just the, the the frivolous nature of Glenn just like kind of just painting off on like this like public br- bridge. Like I love these moments. Um, and, yeah, and it's, those are it, really nice because they are nice. There's there's a tranquility there that are in these moments that aren't in like say you know Larry uh, walking through New York and wasting his steak dinner with uh, Laura San Giacomo. But there's there is like a patience and a and a nice um, uh, portraits of Americana that I that I always value when I watch these scenes. And um, I'm kind of hoping that Josh Boone has this type of stuff in um, the new one. And it's not just so like you know rush 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 rush. Um, when I was a yeah. kid, I, th- I thought that the beers were Cokes. And I remember as a kid being like, ooh, I want to try Coke out of a lake. <laughs> no, no, I'm being serious. I was like, oh, it's really good. I'm dreaming. I, I and then you went, to, you went down to the lake, and then uh, your parents like, uh, Dan, no. And you like fell in the river, and you're like, dad had to like, jump in and get you. And... Well, uh, you with all the plastic in the ocean, Caffrey, you'll have your wish come true very soon. Yeah, cause... seriously. I, can't, um, I, I, I cannot stop laughing imagining him. Him saying the line of like, 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 thanks for the Pollock painting, old timer, like blowing his, his like splatter. He goes, hey, wasn't a. Ed and he's Harris still supposed to be the good guy. He's like, Ed, 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 Ed Harris is in this first oh. episode, right? Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I thought was interesting, though, is when uh, he offers Franny the beer and she says no. And, you know, when you first watch the movie, you don't necessarily pick up that she's pregnant, but they did put in a few things of her, you know, not taking medicines mm-hmm. or not drinking alcohol. 
little foreshadowing there. Which is always funny because it it just reminds me of how for years and years and years I always thought it was Gary Sinise's baby. Because when she tells Harold that she's pregnant, right? Like, he's standing by her Mm -hmm. side. Like, and it's... And, or something like that, I feel. It or maybe is. it's just it's... when she says that they're dating, mm-hmm. like, I always assumed that it was Stu's baby. Yeah. yeah. Well, and they don't sit in this one, correct me if I'm wrong, I might be misremembering the first episode, they don't sit, do they mention Jess at all? Cause, I mean, they do. The... Yeah, she talks to her dad and she says, like, yeah, we're taking some time. Oh, that's right. I, I think it's weird because in the, I mean, the first time you meet Franny in the book is she's with Jess and she literally is telling him she's pregnant. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. a little more, I, th- I think I felt the same way when I was a little kid. I thought it was just Stu's, Stu's baby. Well, they do that thing. Like, yeah, you're right, Randall. Like it, it looks like a, um, like, and I keep, I'm going to keep ham- hammering on the Christian thing, but like, it really does look like a, like a Christian, Christian announcement photo of like, we're expecting, <laughs> you know, like there's a third one that's going to be in our, our house of Jesus. Like, you know, um, yeah. Franny mentions Jess too when, uh, like Harold mentions that that she's got a boyfriend, and then she tells him, and then she, oh yeah, and this is, I think this ties into the the whole lack of grief, you know, is like, um, Harold's like, oh yeah, your boyfriend, and then she goes, well, not anymore, and yeah, she, and she like says it so flippantly, and it's like he's dead, Franny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, what about you? Got you mentioned um, because this is kind of in those scenes. So you mentioned Larry, uh, Larry meaning Nadine. Um, how do you, I, I, I know, and look, I'm not going to get on the Stork debate because I will be team Adam Stork till the day I die. I love him. <laughs> Same. He's brilliant. I think he's perfect. But um, I will say, I mean, it was like we were saying in the last podcast, it's crazy to see them actually film this in the middle of Central Park. Like, you just yep. don't see that in network That's television awesome. stuff anymore. It's, well, so, you like, had, it's such a good scene. Randall had a good point about this in the text there. That you were saying that they film it in Central Park, but... Um, was it Mother Abigail's shots are like on a fucking soundstage the entire time? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that was, I think, one of the more jarring parts for me when I was watching this was I was genuinely like, oh shit, it's the Plaza Hotel in the background. Like that to me is one of the coolest. And I was talking to Jen about this because she was sort of casually... Because, uh, like, she watched the first part with me, and then, you know, like, Susan was like, mm, okay, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, you can watch it without uh, me. But she was how in long the room. Is this thing? <laughs> yeah. She was, and then she was in the room when I was watching part two, and I pointed it out to her. I'm like, isn't it cool? Like, they actually, you know, really did film in a lot of these locations. And she was really impressed by that. But then, you know, then you get to the Mother Abigail stuff, and it goes like, because you, when you have Larry's dream, um, in the you know like when he is in the corn and he sees mother abigail uh he you know that it goes straight from like you know new york like where they have this amazing on location mm-hmm. set not set but like you know shooting scene and um and then it goes straight into the soundstage and i like i said i like it in the dream but then it's when we have that scene where she's talks about her bowel movements and everything oh, and she has all God. that and then the, what a friend we have in jesus moment it's like uh that that's filmed very similarly so there isn't really that difference but then later uh when like nick and um tom and all them arrive it does look like they're actually shooting on a location so that's i think what's really bizarre is there's sort of this weird inconsistency in the way that mother abigail's house is shot um well, randall I you might be i visually. think you might be right i think i was reading uh, i was just reading old interviews about it and i think they did film like parts of it like on an actual in the actual corn and built like an actual house and then the other parts they yeah they did the sound i, I don't know what the logic was but i, well, I think he, you're right that is what they here's did. here's some here's some trivia that i got so um this is on wikipedia so anyone who searches the stan miniseries right now as they're curious about the world um could could read this themselves but they said faced with prices of uh forty dollars uh forty dollar per stock for new york made fake corn stocks um, the set designer opted instead to grow 
3,250 corn stalks as a cost-cutting measure. However, when a winter storm hit Utah, the reproduction of a Nebraska house with cornfield became complicated by the fact that the harsh weather did not allow the corn crop to grow taller than four feet. So they probably would have had to have uh, leaned on, um, you know, going back and getting the, the fake corn, which, yeah. you know, wow. sucks. Sucks, sucks, sucks. Yeah. But actually, I was going to say, I like the uh, soundstage. It gives it a weird dream eeriness because um, it's pretty obvious that it's filmed indoors, but I, I dig it for the dreams. Um, and on that note of the what a friend we have in Jesus, that was one of my favorite scenes uh, when I was growing up when Flag is like, my blood is in your hands, mother, and her hands just start getting cut on the guitar mm-hmm. strings. I yeah, just thought that was really cool. I, I wish that Flag stayed that way the entire movie because his, his face is legitimately creepy in it yeah. as opposed to when he has the full demon makeup and he looks like a character that's like in, I don't know, Guyver 2. <laughs> like it looks just, like wait, he looks like Wishmaster a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> it, it looks like demon. Dust Till Dawn three or something like uh, the quality. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and yeah, that 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 makeup is cool. But then also, I find actually genuinely effective even today is uh, in Nadine's dream when he's saying yes. "Leave him, leave him," and then it cuts yeah. and he's got the black eyes and his voice is suddenly really deep. He's like "Leave him," and like I, and then we I know we talked about this on the last episode, but the fact and like even when Stu is going through the corn and uh, you know he turns and then uh, he says "boo" or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it's like there's I love it because there's no stings, you know, there's no, no like boom kind of thing. It just kind of they allow the Garrus allows the the scare to speak for itself. And I think that that is one of the more effective moments. I remember being genuinely freaked out by the black eyes and the leave him, you know, like that's like to me a very effective uh, moment. Well, and also, yeah. too, in the book, you're no one can ever truly get a good look at his face. I know that would have been really hard to do on an ABC miniseries, but I do feel like they do that in the corn. You know, I, I feel like for I feel like the law. I mean, I, I actually think Jamie Sheridan is quite good as Randall Flagg. Mm-hmm. I like that he's I agree. Yeah. got this anonymity and this kind of romance novel hunkiness about him. But um, I almost wonder if they could have lit him in shadow a little bit longer. I guess the first time we really see him is um, in Lloyd's jail cell, right? That's I think mm-hmm. it's the first time we see his face. But we see it so clearly. And I just I, I wonder if there would have been a way to have gradually revealed him just a little bit more. Even though, I, like I said, I think his performance. Well, here, here's a little tidbit about the production design for the, the Utah prison. And I only bring this up because we're talking about the cabin and in direct juxtaposition, it's it's uh, kind of hilarious. So the jail sequences were shot for three days at the sex offender wing of the Utah State Prison. Um, uh, the, how, Lloyd's been a bad boy. I know he has been a bad boy. <laughs> and this is crazy. So, however, the effects crew who were working on dead body dummies in the cells were unaware of this on the first day of shooting at the location and assumed it was an unused wing. The prison actually moved the sex offenders out of their cells for the miniseries, but the prisoners' belongings were left in the cells only for members of the effects team to confuse them as props by the art directors. Um, On the first day of shooting, the effects people moved all the props from one cell to another. The next day, several letters were written by prisoners and attached to their respective cells, ranging from angry responses to bids for kings to to sign the, the autograph. Now, what I love about this is that they went so far as to go to the 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 more nefarious and disgusting uh, prison wing, <laughs> but then for a simple cabin in the middle of a cornfield. <laughs> nope, you you're right next to you know Seinfeld shooting next door. Uh, you know, 
But and it is really cool. Some of those scenes when he's walking through the prison, the length of the hallway, yeah. uh, the yeah. breadth of it, those are really effective because they really do um, really help frame the isolation and the claustrophobia of mm-hmm. Lloyd uh, being trapped in a cell when there's so many cells and everyone around him is dead. And can you imagine the stink, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's one of those moments that I think is really effective. And like, like there's just this one shot I remember of, of uh, Jamie Sheridan's flag and shadow walking down that corridor and and it seems so long and it's it's to me just a really really effective moment and yeah. i and obviously you know you've got miguel Freire and you've got uh jamie sheridan it's one of the better acted exchanges you know because yeah, both yeah, of I'll them really it. kill it yeah no i think like the clicking of the boots as he's coming down the hallway is very effective yeah um it's almost like a goat-legged creature with hooves you know just like that right but that scene when he first meets uh lloyd i it's one of my favorites from the movie because he does the little trick where he puts the uh, the black stone, the eye of the Crimson King on the back of his hand, but then he folds his palm inward over it. I think that's like a really effective little stupid trick. And yeah. then uh, the whole, pleased to meet you, Lloyd. Hope you guess my name. And he's like, huh? No, oh, I, that's the only line I hate. Classical that reference. The... Oh, I love it. <laughs> I, I don't like the caca line. I just think it's so lame. Like, he's like, I would have loved to have been like, you know, oh, it looks like you're in some fucking shit here, uh, right on ABC television. <laughs> I just wanted him King to like. He loves. To, uh, you know, King loves using the word caca. It's in yeah. so many of his books. Well, no, that's ca- I think it's the ca connection for real, though. I think oh. he's any way he can mention ca, he's going to do it. You poor guy. You look like caca. Caca <laughs> oh, <laughs> with a K. Caca is a wheel. Caca is, is a wheel. with a K. I will say it, it does feel weird, like maybe just as somebody who is a, you know, is a is now like I, I've grown into being like a storyteller, like a writer. It's to, to see these moments where, uh, like when we first meet Trash Can Man, when we first like, uh, well, especially when we first meet Trash Can Man here, and we we can wait a little bit to get deep into that, but there's that you hear this voiceover where it's suddenly Flag just being like, "I will put you high in my ranks," you know, and it's like, why this guy? I know, <laughs> you know. Well, that, and then that's... later when he's talking to Lloyd, he's like, "I'll make you leader of my, you're like you're you're my right hand," and it's like, why him? Because he's alive? Like, because it's not like we've we've learned. Like, it's not like we saw great criminal prowess with Lloyd. We just saw him fuck up a robbery and get arrested, you know? And then with, uh, with, uh, Trash Can Man, we just see this, like, lunatic who just wants to blow something up for the fun of it. Like, I, and I, the thing is, Dan, maybe you can shine a light on this because you just read it, but it's been a bit, you know, it's been since we did the episode yeah. that I read the book. Like, is there more, ex- like, does he make those promises and is there more explanation for why they're so special? For Trash Can Man, for Trash Can Man, there is because in the book they re- he really drives home that they're looking for weapons in the desert, and mm-hmm. Trash Can Man has this kind of sixth sense to seek them out. Yeah, like, and, they, and they they talk about how it's, he he almost gets in these fugue states. It's like this mystical thing. Lloyd, not so. Much. I mean, you never really hear you never really hear Flag's side of the rationale behind Lloyd. I will say something. They I, I guess they kind of drive it home in the miniseries. If if I were to guess, would just be the loyalty aspect of it, you know, cause I mean, yeah. as we see later, Lloyd gets a chance to leave and he doesn't, but I mean like trash can man in the book makes more sense to me. Lloyd, they never really go so far into it, which is kind of, although I love Lloyd as a character. I think he's one of my favorites. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Yeah. I, it just I feels gotta a be honest. Jarring, yeah. Well, I think, I think the whole, I was talking about trash can man with Sammy, like when we were watching it on Sunday and it just seems so like, it is such a king construction, and it, it makes sense in this in, in the context of the book. Maybe I mean he's always been my least favorite character in the entire novel, but I on TV it's almost bewildering 
the amount and level of detail that King allows himself to have, uh, allows trash to have in this miniseries without any context whatsoever. Like you're introduced well, to him like running, like running forward for these the gas tanks. And then y'all, yeah. Like he just, all he has really is just these voices in his head and you get in the book, obviously you get more of the backstory and the context for why he's there, but it's requiring a lot of inside baseball on behalf of the viewer to really kind of fully understand trash man. I feel like I, and it just seems so he just seems so um, much like a caricature in ways that not even some of the more milder caricatures in this movie uh, stand out. It, it just, he just sticks out like a sore thumb to me in this, in this series. Yeah. I, I don't know. As I recall in the book too, like he's more childish, mm-hmm. you, you know, when you see like his mentality in the book because of the abuse and like when uh, he encounters the kid, he actually sort of reverts back to kind of a childlike state. Whereas in this one, it just seemed, I was surprised at the amount of screen time they gave him. Uh, Cause I feel like a lot of that stuff with the voices lighting the fires could have been done a little bit quicker. Yeah. But when you have six hours of screen time, you know, there were a lot of scenes where you could tell they were just letting him play out. Yeah. And I think too, in the, in the book, they, he, it's weird. And I, I don't know. I think Matt Furrier does a good job in this, but in the way he's I written agree, yeah. once again, in the May series, he comes across a little bit more malicious and demented than he than he does in the book. Like the book's interesting because although he does, as a result of making all these fires kill people, of course, he doesn't get off on that in the book. He's not like he's not malicious necessarily. He's just like obsessed with fire, you know. And they also go into more of yeah. his background about how he has done prison time and um, yeah, like Flieger is saying, has would would kind of do favors for other men and sexual favors for other men in prison because it was a survival mechanism, which like, yeah, it it makes him seem not quite as, as crazy, even though he is crazy, he seems really crazy here. But like I said, I mean, I, I, uh, Hey, maybe I'm a sucker for the animated series of Ace Ventura Pet Detective, but I love Matt Furrier. <laughs> <laughs> I love Matt Furrier, too. I love Matt Furrier, too. Yeah, I, I just wish that, and this even goes back to the novel, like, why couldn't it just been someone who's just interested in, like, you know, wanting to fuck things up and, like, we don't really need to have some sort of wacko backstory to explain Yeah, it, I, I like, feel like Flag could have just sent him as an emissary to the free zone just be like trash can just go over there and fuck shit up well that's the thing is that you can't he can't control flag or not control flag but can't control trash trash. and that's kind of like what leads to i guess his downfall spoiler alert if you haven't read or seen the stand on your list and you're doing a rewatch with us but um, (laughs) you know uh but i i think there's there's something in there's an intrigue to that but I, i think like i just think you know, in hindsight and, you know, playing Monday morning quarterback, I, I just think that like it would have been so much more effective if you just had like a, a criminal who just wanted to like, just was bored and just wanted to burn shit down. Like well, I, 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 I almost, I almost wonder because King has always called this, his version, his Americana version of, of Lord of the Rings and trash cans definitely like the, uh, the Gollum type character, oh, yeah. you know, but once again, Gollum, a character as crazed as Gollum, is a lot more believable in in a land where there are also giant eagles and volcanoes and yeah. all this other I, stuff too. Yeah, I do wish that we could have gotten uh, William Baldwin to play a uh, trash can man because the, the following year he played a pyromaniac <laughs> and a pyromaniac love story starring John Leguizamo. Billy, Billy, Billy Baldwin. As a, I wonder. Yeah. I mean, I, in a way, I guess they could have they could have combined. Hey, but, hey, what about? What about combining Rat Man with Trash Can Man and you call him <laughs> the Rat Can Man? <laughs> I would have loved to see Trash Can Man playing <laughs> arcade games. <laughs> wait, <laughs> wait, are, I have to, I can't remember because I, I watched all of them back to back. Is episode two, do we see Trash get to Vegas 
and we meet the rat man again in no, Vegas? Or no, no, that, that's, that's part three. three. All right, let's, I'm going to say I that. can't wait for that. He's that's in the first one of the best chapter, lines, but not yeah. at all in the second chapter. But yeah, we were texting about that, how it's funny that, you know, I know it's from the other chapter, but the rat man sitting there playing centipede and he's just like, don't cross me. I'm the rat man. <laughs> and he's dressed like, he's dressed so weird. What's so funny that he's with, he's with that the character he's with is named Ace High, who is like a minor supporting character in the, in the book. But in, in the miniseries, all he does is he's like Ratman stooge and Ratman is already a stooge. So it's just funny that like, and also it's funny that they, they're already together in New York and they somehow and they both survive. I know it's like such a silly display and everything. Can we talk real quick too about, I mean, since we're, we're kind of back in New York, um, and look, like I said, I'm a stork stan. I love his <laughs> his little chef, his little chef's hat when he cooks yes. Nadine. <laughs> yeah, let's, well, let's talk about, yeah, we'll get to the chef's hat. Let's talk about meeting Nadine in New York and that, you know, here Nadine sort of steps in for uh, Rita, who is the, um, you know, older kind of New York socialite who finds herself alone in Central Park and bewildered. And Larry sort of, you know, meets her out of loneliness. They develop this sexual relationship and then she ODs on pills and then he goes off on his own. Well, they but they're the ones also who go through the tunnel together, which we'll talk about. So Nadine fulfills those roles down to the pills as well, which I find interesting. It yeah. seems like an unnecessary addition the pills aspect but um uh because it's a weird like i don't think you need to fuse rita and like if you're gonna bring in nadine at that point i think that was actually probably a smart adaptation choice yeah. um but yeah, also no i don't pay, there's no payoff for the pills in the miniseries yeah, about it. yeah it's just like it's like you don't need to merge the characters just sort of sub in nadine it still works but i do find it interesting that in the cbs miniseries they have cast uh somebody as as rita so they are going to be doing that it's oh. an actress of note too i just can't remember who is it uh, um, is it gloria stewart um i can't remember I think it's, but I think I, it's kathy bates right oh uh, man that'd be great hey i'd love to see i'd love her to see reprise her role as ray flowers I mean, she'd oh, be way too old, right uh, <laughs> yeah that'd be awesome but no, uh, but I do think that it's I, I I actually I have kind of a weird fondness for the Rita storyline, even though it is very, very excisable. But yeah, it's like I, I do think the New York story is really necessary. And I think that's one of the big coups of the uh, miniseries was being able to actually film in the city. Yeah. And uh, and those moments are really great. And actually, I think one of the Stork's better acting moments mm -hmm. is when he first meets nadine and then they see the monster crier dead on the steps i mean and look just do, the... you, do you say oh this is one of picasso's better paintings i mean how, there's so many to choose from I, I really do love adam stork <laughs> i do too i just i just yeah, love I it he... I, I, go go for it oh no i was gonna say like they really this time i noticed the bruce springsteen play up like how much they were trying to make him look and behave like bruce even he's like the, 90s what, bruce yeah like human yeah. touch yeah he's like human touch They're like bruce hey let's get sure. the vest of uh the human touch tour and yeah, um, he's wearing yeah. that yeah he is. it's always was... hard to pretend to be a rock star yeah and like just wearing the vest when he's going through the cornfield and you're like you're just wearing a vest dude like <laughs> it's it's hard to pull off um but no I, I like his performance in this and you know with that cooking scene i think it's you start to see some of the sweetness with him and that he does have a playful side, even though, you know, he, well, he's a recovering drug addict and just got famous. But I do love the line, too, that Nadine says to him where she's like, you think you're right. The Big Apple is baked. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, pretty, that's a little clever line. That's a cool How do you guys line. like I, I like uh, I, I, once again, I think her character becomes much less complex in this because she obviously because she's a composite of two characters but i, I like lauren san as, as nadine in this I, mean, she, I don't she she leans a little far into like the evil 
seductress thing later on, but I don't know. I think she's pretty good. I don't mind her. I, I think I, I actually think that the pills thing adds a little bit more weight to her just because it shows that sort of codependency that they, I guess, are trying to strive for without having to get into the backstory of Nadine, which is unfortunate considering it's one of the more scarier moments of the stand. Um, yeah. And I don't know how you'd really do that in the mini in this miniseries. There's just no way that you would have been able to do the Ouija board stuff. There's just absolutely no way. But there is that sort of codependency that they have where she's, you know, she clearly aligns um you know and with larry because she needs someone and then you see her pivot immediately the minute flag uh comes in the only gripe i have is that the whole virginal arc of like i you know i I, if we stayed together we just end up having sex it just seems as if that's like the only focus and it's not like it's so much more than just having sex and being deflowered and all this other stuff like there's there's so many more um uh nuances at play especially in the book so when you read the letter, um, which I still think of every time I, I hear uh, a voiceover for a letter, all I think of is the scene in old school where Will, Will Ferrell yeah. reads the letter. Um, it's like, I love you. We're all. <laughs> I love you. But I, the, 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 this was just, it just, it just kind of made uh, her character feel so much more black and white where it's just like, if we would end up staying yeah. together, we would have had sex or something like that. And it's just like, well, no, you, you guys, you probably would have fallen in love and had a more relationship and you're more devoted, uh, you know, to the, the devil or like the, you know, the flag character. And it just seemed so like easy, like an easy way to like, well, yeah. And I think that's the mini, and especially as we go along, which we talked about this last time too, but I, and, and this is going to be the case, I think with any work that has any kind of moral ambiguity or moral complexity this May series just starts to feel more and more black and white as we progress. Whereas one of the strengths of the books, the book, even when it does get pretty Christian is that characters like Harold and even Lloyd uh, and, and Nadine, they all have, they all remain pretty complex until the end, you know, that none of them are 100% good or 100% bad. Mm-hmm. I always thought um, maybe this is like a thing I shouldn't bring up. I don't know why, I, but even as a kid, I thought this was funny when you see her and Larry, like try to do it in the tent or whatever she has, I think she's like boxers or something on. I don't know. Whatever she's wearing, it's very funny to me because they're supposed to be like almost having sex and she's wearing, she's wearing like boy gym shorts. It looks like, mm-hmm. I don't know why that always, hey, that always, this like, was ABC. I know. I, know, I don't know why yeah. they, they could just, I, I don't know why it's like, it always struck me as very funny. Like even as a little kid, I'm like, that doesn't look right. But well, I, I the, what, the part that I was shocked by that I totally forgot is when they are about to enter the tunnel and Nadine kind of chickens out and he goes, you have fun getting raped and murdered back on 7th Avenue, sweetheart. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, Randall, terrible Randall, thing Randall, to say. You, you, speaking of that part, you have to talk about the uh, your hand, the hand gesture. You, you love that. <laughs> yeah, there's a really hilarious like moment that I feel like sort of typifies maybe my issues with Adam Stark's performance, which is he he's he's very uh, he indicates, you know, to use a phrase. He's he's a very broad actor. And but there's a moment when she's leaving and he gets really mad and he doesn't say anything. The camera just cuts to him and he does this like this like like little uh, like he holds his hands in front of him and then flicks his fingers like twice while making a face like he just sucked on a lemon. And it's like a really, really, really funny just like two seconds. And I caught it and I <laughs> I kept sending the video because it just was cracking me well, up. I, I had never noticed that, and and, and even I don't know, even watching in sequence, I don't know if I would have noticed it. But you, you did it. You just had that clip isolated. It was so funny. It was just like it was like. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that tunnel sequence still really works for me. Um, the only thing, and I remember thinking this when I was a kid too, and this touches on when we were talking about the people dying in the lab, like the man dying while playing ping pong. And uh, but there's like when he's they're in the tunnel, which is you know an excellent sequence mm-hmm. in the book, and also also pretty solid here. Uh, it just this idea of all these people dead in their cars is always very strange to me. Like that all these people were sick with the flu at the exact same amount uh and none of them thought to get out and walk you know like i mean well maybe some did but it's like we usually we just are basically seeing all these bodies just piled throughout and they explain that in the book because basically Mm. they were trying to stop people from leaving new york and eventually the army like shot everyone dead in the tunnel which is really scary so scary and so dark and so that makes total sense but here the implication is or at least the implication is that they all died from the flu which is just kind of silly to me this whole concept of them all dying like, well what's yeah, also guys, silly is that adjusting like adjusting his rearview mirror and he's stuck in a tableau of like touching yeah. the radio dial <laughs> well, yeah there's also the idea that like the lights and the track uh, on the cars would still be on i know this is nitpicking nits and like being nitpicky but the the batteries would have been dead uh by then there's yeah. like no way any of these cars unless it had been like overnight which even then they would have been out by the next morning it, it just it's just nice little hollywood effects that you get in there um but I, I think it's funny. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go, oh, no, go for it. Go for it. Go for it. I was going to say, I think it's funny too. Speaking of Ace Ventura, um, it reminded <laughs> me when he's like dropping the flashlight and like his Zippo in that scene where in Ace Ventura 2, when he's in the tunnel, and he's like, as long as I have my amulet, I'll be okay. And he throws it. When he's <laughs> in, in, the, the in the bat tunnel? From the bat tunnel? <laughs> I was just thinking about Larry as Ace Ventura. I, I, I wonder if, uh, I have not watched the Ace Ventura movies in a really long time. I loved them as a kid. Don't know if they would hold up now. But uh, I guess I, you know, I'm going to choose to preserve them like Amber in my head as being glorious masterpieces. And as well as the uh, Saturday morning cartoon show, um, Ace Ventura Pet Detective, where he was voiced by none other than Matt Trashcan Man Fruit. <laughs> Did I, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. I feel like Matt Frewer also voiced Jim Carrey's character on the Saturday morning cartoon version of The Mask. I almost feel like oh, he was Oh, wow. Track. Let me, Let me I'm going to look. Yeah, yeah. I'll, check, check, I'll look check right for us, Mike. Good work if you can get it. Uh, I will say money in that. Yeah. One of my favorite jump scares. And I think, again, I like it because it's not accompanied by a musical sting or anything is, uh, is when Larry sees that dead body and he looks up and just, this is like, Hey Larry or whatever. It's like, it's kind of silly, like maybe in a vacuum, but I think in the context of the scene, I've always found it fairly effective. Yeah. He talks to himself. He says, don't look at them stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Oh, God, so good. <laughs> well, unfortunately, Stanley Epkiss was not voiced by Matt for, but by Rob Paulson. However, there is a King connection. Uh, guess who voiced Dr. Septimus Pretorius? Uh, he is Bill Miguel Ferrer. Nope. Uh, he is a villain in another uh, iconic 90s miniseries. Uh, Jamie Sheridan? <laughs> no. Another. Oh, no, I know. Steven Weber. Steven Weber? No, 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 no. Another one earlier before all of these. Uh, Tim Curry? Yeah. Oh, oh wow. Nice. Yeah. Kaka is a wheel. Kaka is a wheel. Kaka. Can we talk to you about the uh, sex scene, the Miami Vice guitar riffs? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Man, um, that was getting hot and heavy there. There there are a lot of music cues in this that don't work. Um, I think that the the stuff with, like, when when, when Trash Can first comes up and it sounds like a a shitty Velvet Revolver song, like, it's like... (laughs) Wait, you mean when when he's in Vegas? Oh, when he first goes to Vegas there. But then when you first see... 
um, tra- it does play like some other um, heavy guitar parts. When he blows up at the oil tanks. I, yeah. I, I, I told this to you guys the other day, no joke. Because I, I, I weirdly always associate The Stand with the Eagles album, Hotel California. I mm-hmm. think my dad was listening to it while reading it or something when I was a kid. But when And so that song, Those Shoes by the Eagles, it sounds very similar. Well, or I should say, the Trash Can Vegas theme sounds very similar to Those Shoes. And so when I was little, I'm like, oh, right, they're playing the Eagles. But yeah, I remember it was just because it has that like, like the thing you're doing. So uh, yeah. That sounds like I, a tool song. Yeah, hey, oh yeah, yeah it, sound, it does sound I like... I am just uh, a worthless liar. Oh, it does sound like um, <laughs> Jesus Jesus blows his fucking whistle, whatever that song, that song is. Uh, H? Jesus that, you know, blows sober. Silver. Silver. Oh yeah, sober. Oh yeah, why can't we just be sober again? I, I um, It's funny, because I love, for the most part, I love W.G. Snuffy Walden's music mm-hmm. in this. I think anything acoustic is great that he plays. I love the... We'll get to it in episode four, when the, they start on their quest... Yeah, but I, I agree. I, most of the electric guitar stuff is a little a little bit much. Oh, well, I, don't, I don't mind when the army, in the first episode, they show the army taking over everything. That's pretty good. But yeah, all these love scenes where it has like the, the like Santana guitar, like, yeah, it sounds very silk stockings-y. Yeah, very, yeah very, when, uh, Ve- when Trashy's first in Vegas, I think I was texting uh, you guys about how it's just like the cheesiest fucking like porn music, like when he's in Vegas. <laughs> yeah. It just cracks me up. Yeah. <laughs> They, um, the worst is the worst is if you're listening to the soundtrack and I, I listen to score a lot and I I tend to do I mean, it when, the, the, I'm, the, when I'm writing or something. But there's a part where some like, of it's iconic, man. It's oh, it's great. Some of it, but, like, some of it really is iconic. Like that stretch when it's like a lot of the the more um, uh, folksy uh, the guitar or the roots guitar stuff, and then also with like the piano kicks in. But then when you're enjoying that nice little like arc of of songs that are usually like right when they're leaving Boulder, you get like. Um, Dun, 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 like the titular track and it's just like what fucking it sounds like something from like money more from power rangers or something it just doesn't <laughs> like it works in the scene i guess but like it's just it's a it's very jarring it's a hard soundtrack to like i usually take out two of those tracks just so i, I don't i don't get like you know pummeled by like the trash man uh it, it would be funny if you're if you're going for like a nice autumn walk in chicago and yes. you're gonna listen to the stand I'm just gonna put it on shuffle, and then Trash's theme comes. Yes, on but that's what happened. Because yeah. 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 I when we just like go go Stuart Redman, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Redman Ranger, the Redman. Redman <laughs> forgives you. And then Tommy's in it for some reason. Yeah, right. Speaking of Tom, Tommy, Tom Cullen, Tom Cullen, Tom Cullen, the- Tom Cullen is the Green Ranger. He's like do 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 do. That spells moon. He's like, M-O- He's like, M-O-N, that spells white tiger. I guess I'm bad now. Um, yeah. Should we talk about Tom Cullen? Uh, yeah, let's talk about Nick Andros and Tom Cullen. So uh, we basically, is Nick is Nick's story at the end of the first part, it's him leaving Shoyo, right? Yeah, yeah. So in this, we, we see it when he goes. I, I never noticed this until recently. I'm pretty sure they filmed them both on the same street, but he... He goes towards Tom Colonna's, and then where they meet Julie Lowry, that's supposed to be another town, but it's clearly the same street. Yeah. Like, they just, but I mean, it's, I guess it's all supposed to be Midwestern small town stuff. But yeah, so he, yeah, so it starts off with him getting to wherever Tom Collin lives. Is he in Kansas, I think? I, I can't remember. Uh, Oklahoma, right? Yeah, Oklahoma? It's, a, it's a town called May, is what I remember. I don't remember yeah. the, the actual state, but I, uh, yeah, it's. How do we feel about um, Tom Cullen and. The casting of Bill Fager. What is it? Fagerback? Fagerback. 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 Fager, yeah. I mean, he, I, it's, I don't know, Tom Collins tough because obviously, I will say this. I actually think in the, in the book, 
it is written a little bit more nuanced than King gets credit for at the same time while succumbing to some magical, differently abled person stereotypes, you know? Um, and I, I don't know. I think that, I think the movie does like, I think he, let's put it this way. I feel like he arguably has the, the most famous quote from the movie, the MO and stuff. And yeah. I can, whenever I read the comic or reread the book, I can't not picture it in his voice. So I feel I like that shows he did a good job. He's a lot older than Tom Collins supposed to be. I think, Bill Figurebacks in his late thirties, early forties here, and Tom Collins only supposed to be like younger than Nick, I think. Um, yeah, but I, I think, I think for being a very broadly written part, he does a good job, and they, and they, I don't know, he's very endearing. I think I'm, I'm always rooting for Tom whenever I watch it. What do you guys think, though? Yeah, I'm, I, I think he's perfect casting. I mean, obviously, it's, it's tough these days. Um, Some problematic you know, things, but, but he's really good, though. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's tough. Uh, just the general concept of, of when you're casting somebody who's differently abled, there is the question of, like, I think a lot of uh, filmmakers have proven that you can cast people who are dealing with those challenges. Like Peter Butter Falcon. In those roles, and, yeah, yeah, like Peter Butter yeah. Falcon's a great example. Like that kid is really, really good in that movie, and I think it does show that you can do that you can't trust these actors to to do it and um and so i think that it can be a little tough whenever you revisit uh somebody playing that kind of role i mean leonardo dicaprio did he win an oscar or was he just nominated for gilbert no he was nominated um and honestly like, he know, won. He, he's great in that movie but um, i mean he's incredible in it but you also just have those moments where you wonder like uh you know like is that how does that feel now you know i mean like crispin glover the actor uh he basically he was in Gilbert Grape, and I think he struggled so much with uh, Leo's the praise that was heaped on Leo for that role that basically he devoted a lot of his filmmaking efforts to working with people who were suffering from, uh, you know, cerebral palsy and things like that and building movies around them. He made a movie called What Is It? He made a movie called It Is Fine. Everything is fine. I've seen both of them. And uh, they're difficult, strange experimental watches, but they're movies that their whole attempt is to uh portray people like actors with those afflictions in roles that were not written to Mm -hmm. be them (laughs) so they're just playing normal people in them yeah i remember when uh i am sam came out which i think that movie is trash i fucking hate it like except for the paul westberg beatles cover on there that's pretty good but um sean penn so who is not differently able plays the main character and then his two like very minor supporting role friends they they cast as people who were actually differently abled. I remember he got all this praise for it, and I was kind of like, "Fuck that, man!" He still gave himself the lead, but like, it it almost felt very patronizing to me that he was like, "Okay, well, you guys can play these little small roles, and I'm gonna go for that Oscar gold." You know? Anyway, right. yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the truth is, and you know, not to be uh, the the Debbie Downer, but these movies wouldn't sell. I mean, they'd never get up off the ground. No, you're right. I mean, yeah. That's, like, I mean, well, that's why Crispin Glover's movies are a risk. You know? And, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think that I Am Sam wouldn't sell, but I do think that when you're doing The Stand, uh, it's an ensemble piece and you probably could get away with it. I know. Uh, I, I'm a this... huge fan of Michael Dauber Dabinsky from the from Coach, so I, I was <laughs> yeah, really stoked. Well, no, bring him up. Like, I, I will character. say, I will say, I think that, you know, obviously at, when this was made, that wasn't something people were talking about. And I, I do think that especially his look, uh, his general demeanor, and the fact that he is a really versatile actor, uh, Bill Fagerbaki, uh, he, because he's not, yeah, he's, he plays big dopey kind of 
you know, characters like I'm Coach, and he's obviously and he plays Patrick. He voices Patrick in SpongeBob, which means he's a gazillionaire in real life. But he also like played a neo-Nazi prison guard on Oz, and he's, he's great excellent. in Oz. Yeah, he's in a he's in a Larry Clark movie called Ken Park, and he he plays he's in this really weird storyline. I'm looking at um in the upcoming series, it's Brad Henke, who yeah yeah who Brad is a, I guess was a arena football player, so I'm guessing he's not. Um, no, he's not. Able to, so be in, but I know there was some controversy with the mini series, the upcoming mini series about ca- possibly casting a um, a uh, deaf mute person as Nick Andrews, but the director did he did bat- Josh Boone was like, well, no, but he has to talk in the dream sequences, so like it's it, it requires different things. So so which yeah, I think is well, apparently sense. Rob Lowe is deaf in one ear though. Oh, that is true. He <laughs> is. No, no, no. Fleer's right. I think he's right. He's definitely I know. Right. It just still seems yeah. kind of funny. Yeah. 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 Wow. That was a mean thing to laugh at. Yeah. Sorry. No, I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. Not that he's deaf. Just that like, oh, yeah. okay. He's deaf in one ear. You can play a deaf and no. He's the method. Uh, but no, like I like the, uh, with Nick and Tom, I, I think that's like one of my, I keep saying this about every scene. That's one of my favorites in the scene or in the chapter. But when they're interacting and Tom you know, even after realizing he's deaf and dumb, he still looks away when he's speaking so that Nick has to keep kind of tapping him on the shoulder to be like, hey, you got to look at me so I can yeah, read your lips. Yeah, those are nice moments, yeah. It's really well nice. executed. And I like the idea, too, of the he, the fact that he can't read, so he doesn't even get Nick's name until they finally, you know, encounter another stranger who can tell him, oh, that guy's name is Nick, by the way. Yeah, with Ralph. Good old yeah, that's, good old that's Ralph a, <laughs> Yeah, that's actually a really lovely little moment. Um, yeah, I think I actually enjoy. I think I enjoy um, uh, Rob Lowe's performance a little bit more in this one than I did in the first mm. one. Uh, yeah, just you were because, you're a real anti Lowe uh, in the that first episode, man. You, yeah, you I just I I don't <laughs> think that he's 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 very good casting, but I do think that the the dynamic that he and uh, Bill form you know, as with Nick and Tom Cullen, I actually do find that a very endearing bond. And, and I actually think that Rob Lowe finds a couple nice moments with, and I'm excited because we're about to talk about Shawnee Smith, who is oh, my, so who is my MVP of this whole mini series. And, um, and I, I actually quite like the way that they summon the book is in the book. They bone. Um, they do. Like, yeah. yeah Julie Laurie. It's and so weird. It's it is so very weird. weird. It does not age. Well, well especially too, because he like, smacks her right afterwards. So it's just like, yeah. the whole thing feels, I mean, I guess like arguably they would both be lonely and the world is a crazy place, but, um, it's that thing. I mean, this is more the book than the series and the books. It's that thing of King goes out of his way to make her like kind of grotesque, but also drive home how like hot her body is. And just mm-hmm. it, the whole thing just feels really strange overall. But um, it, it, it well, she's like, like a Warner Brothers. She's like 15. Like, oh, yeah. Man. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Oh, like, man, we we harping on that. We harp on that big time in the original episode. Um, oh, do we really? Yeah. Because I, I remember being like, it, it, it's such a um, it's a very uh, big choice you know that, that that they make here of not yeah. having that and that's i think a lot of it might have to do with the context of who the actor is because i think that you know he was coming mm. off of the sex tape you might not have oh yeah that type of stuff in the <laughs> oh movie. they wanted to keep him virginal no dude yeah. you're right because then the, in the book after they have sex she tells him her age and he realizes she's like 16 and he, and he in the book he yeah feels like oh shit like he actually has a moment of regret but yeah that's a good point, Mike. They also talk <laughs> about how big his dick is in the book. Oh, uh, yeah. They, yeah, yeah. Hey, man, well, in the movie, book. she mentions it. She's yeah, like, I guess you're right. Do all deaf, dumb guys have such big guns? <laughs> and then he makes, <laughs> I think he like makes a face lines. like, 
Yeah, he makes a face like, ah, I guess they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, I can show you. But no, Shawnee Smith, though, is, is like oh. pitch-perfect casting. I think she's so good in this. I think she is next level good. Like I, I think there are so many amazing moments she has the way that she uh, like, even when she starts like bullying and like pranking Tom, you know, and like saying that it's poison behind Rob Lowe's back and everything, just the general tone she strikes is this perfect mix of like malevolent, like malevolent playfulness, but also like charm, like, and, uh, and this sort of like veiled sweetness that I think is really fascinating. But what I really love is when they tell her that, she can't join them and she kind of has that breakdown, but then she like runs away crying, but it's such an exaggerated, like comical crying mm-hmm. that it almost feels like she's trolling them a little bit. And like, it, you feel like this is somebody who is mentally unhinged in ways that I think are, you know, it makes sense that she would go to flag. Cause it's, it's like, it, she has like a certain, I think, uh, you know, sinister psychosis that's manifesting there a little bit. And then when she's in the window shooting at them oh, and she God. does that, like, and she does that, like, you know, I don't know that like native, american like you know scream it's like really wild and such like a firecracker of a performance in a film that i think at times there's maybe like one of the things i think you can lodge against some of the performances is sometimes they're maybe just a little too casual yeah uh, and maybe they don't make enough like big bold choices and uh if there's one thing i love about shawnee smith is she takes this tiny role and because it's like she gets this big sequence and then i think we don't see her again till vegas and even then she doesn't do much and yeah. uh but she makes the most of it's like you know she makes the most of a, of a pretty small thankless role well she and, feels uh, like dangerous she feels like legitimately dangerous and yeah it's a really hard thing to do and i think that's like what i'm getting at when i say like that unhinged quality like you never you you just li- like and it's it makes total sense that it's not just the prank that that they choose not to bring her along. I think it's because Nick recognizes that this is somebody you just can't trust. Like this is somebody who could go off the deep end at any minute. And uh, yeah. To a point that Caffrey mentioned on the first episode, um, you know, there's some people who survived who had the immunity to the flu, but then were murdered by other people. Yeah. And you wonder if Julie has actually murdered other people (laughs) because she immediately grabbed the gun and just started firing. Mm -hmm. And if you've never killed someone before, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, not speaking from personal experience, but you know what I mean? It's, it seems to be from what I've read though, like the first kill is very hard. And then afterwards it gets a lot easier and she immediately gets the gun and just starts firing at them. So do you think she's killed anyone else? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Yeah. I had not considered that before, but especially given like, well, I mean, she's in a small town, so she theoretically could be the only person left. I'm going to say yes, because I, uh, I just like that as a plot point. Would say the rest of you. <laughs> I, uh, I think that she's, uh, she's very good. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, she actually has some, uh, she has a history in music. Uh, so she's, she's like fronted bands and stuff. And, um, and I think that plays a big part of this. I think that she has that sort of theatricality um, that comes from like being in like a lot of like punk bands and, and all. I think that. I oh, Shawnee Smith was in punk bands. Yeah. Yeah. She was, was she, she married to, she, she wasn't or, married to Viggo Mortensen. Was she, who was the, who's like the punk singer that was married to Viggo Mortensen for a while. I mean, I, 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 it wasn't Shawnee Smith, though. <laughs> it was not Shawnee Smith, but it's it's kind of crazy. Like she, her her career is is wild. It's just like looking over it right now, and I and the the music oh, yeah, thing caught right. the music thing caught me because it's it it does feel as if she brings that sort of like kind of um, manic punk rock energy to this performance. Uh, I think that I, I think that she's certainly underused in this movie. I think that there are a lot of narratives that you could have given, uh, you know, could have leaned a little bit more on Julie here. But then again, I think you could say the same thing with a lot of things in the stand. Um, 
I do like... She makes a comeback in the future chapters. Yeah, and and I think that they could have probably had a little bit more with her in Vegas, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I love that first, uh, that meet cute. <laughs> I'm going to use that a bunch of times. Um, just because I watched the fully sunny episode about it the other, like, like last night. But uh, I, I, I want to say like the meet cute with, with, with her and, and, and uh, Nick Andros is, is still great. And I love just Rob Lowe's face, the disdain when he's just like you're a bad, bad girl. Like, like, uh, like in his face, like that's what it, like he just like has this like face of like what a kid does on the playground. And it's just like, my mom probably wouldn't like you. Like, you know, it's just, it's very, there's like this sort of adolescence to it that that's kind of cute. But, uh, Shawnee Smith, um, great. Vigo Mortensen was married to Exine Cervenka from X. Oh, from X. Yes, yes, yeah. Ah, uh, yes. I don't know why I got the two of them confused. <laughs> but Sorry. yeah, Shawnee Smith. I wish she popped up in more. I, I mean, she's had a good career, but uh, the one, the only movies I can really pick off the top of my head that I remember her from is the Saw movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. She's also in she... Becker with uh, Ted Danson. Oh, so she's getting that Becker Becker. Mm -hmm. She's getting the Becker residuals, yeah. (laughs) And she also had to play with a crazy person um, that that also had a disease. Uh, She was the ex-wife of uh, Charlie Goodson, a.k.a. Charlie Charlie Sheen. On uh, FX's oh uh, anger management, so oh, I thought you meant in real life. Oh no, no, no! Oh, God, but, you know, he, he was he was certainly on another level when he was making that TV show. So <laughs> yeah. um, she's also in the uh, Shining miniseries. Wait, for real? Who is she? Yeah, she plays a waitress. It's brief, but oh, shit. No. yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, old, old, old well, let's just go a, through her entire cat her career. <laughs> so is uh, so is um, Susan Stern. She plays the tub lady, and that's because she's married to Mick Garris. That's though. true. She's also hey, in, she's uh, in this too. Shawnee Smith is also in, in Summer School, starring Mark Harmon. <laughs> that's it. She is in Summer School. I love Summer School. Love should, Summer should, School. Should we, uh, since we're on the uh, the party going to Hemingford home, should we talk about uh, Ralph Brentner real quick? Because I love <laughs> Ralph Brentner. <laughs> yeah, right. let's talk about Ralph Brentner. Uh, this is a character that I feel like we reference all the fucking time. <laughs> Nonstop. <laughs> He's just so funny to me. I don't, they, was it Peter Van Norden that's a play? He's not bad or anything. They... they he is the folksiest character in the book anyway. And in the book, he has a lot more to do. And they really show him getting close to Mother Abigail and being this kind of leader in the free zone. Here, he just kind of wears his cowboy hat and just says says old chestnuts of phrases. And so uh, I, I, <laughs> I was laughing so hard when they get to Hemingford home, which is, as we've said, is already a little silly anyway. And when they eat, they they have that big feast. That afterwards, he goes, "Oh man, that was a dilly of a meal." <laughs> oh, I know, it's so I, lame. It was so, but then, then when rereading the book, King says "dilly" as, as an adjective like four times throughout the book, and Lloyd says it too. Like he just he's like dropping dillies everywhere, and so it was just like it became really funny to me that that was just like like a thing that's in there. But yeah, Randall is saying that that scene feels very community theater and i think that's like a, a good way to describe it. at least and not because of the performance just it's like ralph just doesn't have a ton to do i think well <laughs> and then you showed us the line in the book he says that was a dilly of a no, it's like, like, the book. Yeah, it's like yeah but it's it's like oh let, let's take away all the cool stuff ralph does in the book and just give him like these these little all oh, shucks man you know kind of things yeah yeah, uh, yeah i agree it's it, i actually do like 
like, the first scene with him is really sweet just because, you know, I remember being very moved by it when I was younger, and I still find it kind of sweet, which is just the idea that Tom doesn't know Nick's name because no, he can't sure, yeah. read, and then when Ralph reads it to him, it's it's so lovely, but... Uh, and you think, and then, and you, you think he might be a villain at first, too. You're like, oh, right. Who's that going to be? No, and, and yeah, at least I a, really like, I like Peter Van Norden as Ralph. Yeah, when he was approaching down the road, I forgot what, that was his introduction, and, you know, you're like, oh, is this a good guy or a bad guy that's coming? But he's so immediately friendly... Yeah. That you're like, this is a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. You have, yeah. You, you have like a sigh of relief kind of, kind of thing when you see it. Yeah. Ralph is definitely <laughs> the lamest character in this uh, entire movie. <laughs> oh come on. Oh, he's so ridiculous. You know who he reminds me of? Like, all right. So I, as I've stated I multiple to times. I like Jay Leno as a kid. Oh, uh, he, he does. Well, no, he he certainly has a Jay Leno aesthetic to him, and he tells dumb jokes like Jay Leno does too. Um, but. The thing that, 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 that drives me nuts about him is that he reminds me of um, the person who's not a dad but tells dad jokes all the time. Like, it's like, <laughs> who are you trying to entertain here? Like, you know, like, like who's your audience? And, like, I knew a lot of people like that in, in just growing up in, like, Episcopalian schools and stuff because you get a lot of, like – um, like teachers and priests who like didn't really have families and stuff, but they would like tell dumb fucking jokes all the time. <laughs> and you have to laugh yeah. at it because you're in their fucking class. And in your head, you're just like, Oh my God, this guy probably takes cold showers at night and cries himself to sleep. Like this is, <laughs> I gotta say, I gotta say this. You get a lot out of Ralph. I was going to say, I, I am loving that Mike is just going scorched fucking earth on Ralph Brentner. Like this know, came out of nowhere. So I, I do know the kind of guy, um, our friend, <laughs> And uh, our friend Paul Martinez, um, uh, well, I don't know if I should say this on the air. Well, it's not that embarrassing. He 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 was talking about this um, this like uh, local pastor, I guess, like in his hometown, and he I think he had to moderate a wedding or give a speech at a wedding or something. And he like and he's, he's talking about the the bride and groom, and he's like he's like oh yeah no let's I don't remember the guy's name. Let's say it's Gary. He's like oh yeah you know when I met Gary, there's only a one thing that came to mind. Got my mind on my money and my money on my mind. Oh, like he was, and, 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 oh, and Paul, and Paul said it didn't. I would just call off the wedding. <laughs> when Paul Paul said it didn't even make sense, like no one, like wait, what? What does that even mean? Like you're just like quoting like Snoop Dogg to try to be cool, like. And this is also in like 2007, I think. So it was, you know, it was, it, yeah, Paul was. Yeah, so weird, but uh, anyway, yeah. So that you know, so I, know, I know the type of guy you're talking about. I don't think Ralph Brentner is that kind of guy, Mike. <laughs> I, I I will say my favorite Peter Van Norton performance is still in Naked Gun <laughs> Two and a Half: The Smell of Fear when he's outside oh, the apartment building, and, and and he's just kind of standing there. Like he plays. Um, let me sign a photo. I just I sent a one. I sent a photo. Uh, of him. Um, I'm looking at, text, I'm at your text. There's another that, one. Thanks though, for the mask. That, the mask. Photo when you too. see him. You'll recognize him from the movie, and it's just it's yeah. one of the funniest parts of the movie. But um, didn't realize some of the movies he's in. Kind of, you know. Kinda well, joking. Mike, do you, but do you have a problem with Peter Van Oren's performance, or just Ralph as a character? You don't like? I think he kind of plays it up a little bit, where he's just he's a little lame. Um, you know, like he could have given him <laughs> some edge, just a, just a little bit of an edge. <laughs> you know, like edge. like you some know, like edge. yeah, like a little bit of an edge. Like when you go to like. You know, like I, 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 when you think of the times I've gone to like ACL and I meet like wholesome people, but you know, they've probably like kicked back a bunch of whiskey and probably like broken a bottle or something like that occasionally. I, I, I don't even think that like 
Ralph in this movie has ever even like has ever even had like a fucking like a, like a, a sip of whiskey. Like there's just like he just oh seems so good natured. I don't know. It, he's a, he's a big part of the reason why like the film feels a little too like uh, like Christiany wholesome to me. Like I don't know. It's, <laughs> well, I guess we know Mike would be going to Vegas if the stand was. <laughs> yes. Well, each episode um, we're going to keep saying where we're going. Free zone. Yeah. Well, before we, I, I think like we all want to talk about sort of the ending of this part between Mother Abigail and Nick and everybody. Before we get there, we haven't talked much about Stu, uh, Glenn, Harold, and Franny. So let's pivot over to there. And I'm just going to remind you that I think, Mike, you mentioned this line, but I had it written down in my notes, too, which was, oh, Harold, I don't know if I'll ever get these calluses off my fanny. My fanny. <laughs> It well, is they're, they're this is, this is a an adult. Line. They're not in. Well, no, I guess this is where you see most of Stu and Fran falling in, lo- in love. No, what see? No, what part I do like quite a bit is where Harold sees them, and then they come back, and he he says, "Oh no, we're it's all good. We're friends." And then he they walk away, and he's like dug his nails into his hands. Yeah. I always thought that was pretty. Yeah. That was pretty disturbing, and connects back to what Flieger is saying about the dark man's hands bleeding too. I, I actually like that scene a lot. I do too. I, yeah, that's kind of it's. When he's like, you know, hey, no problem, still friends, and then he's like, Franny, I guess I could tell you, I love you, and it's just yeah, like, what a weird dude, thing. That's its whole that's next not weird thing. Appropriate to say. time, like if I had a girlfriend and some dude was like, hey, just by the way, I know you're dating him, but I love you. Just had to say that. I'd be like, that's not cool, man. <laughs> yeah, well, um, it's that, it's that it's that weird like tri- like oh, I'm letting you have her kind of thing. Is all oh, is Harold? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like he's been is friends Harold's on, a, like, supposed to be sixteen in this because I always forget that in the book. He's no, like, he's so a little older young. than she is. Yeah. They mention. Um, cause she's no, supposed no, to be like Harold, just Harold, not, not, uh, not, not Stu, Harold. Is Harold supposed to be 16? No, 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 I think Harold is, cause she mentions in the show, or, or in the movie, that he is a little bit older. Like, I think he's in his mid-twenties, or early twenties. Let's see how old Corn Nemec was, uh, when, I guess this would have been right around Parker Lewis Can't Lose, right? Uh. Great, great show. Yeah, I yeah, actually never I, watched, uh, Parker Lewis. I, I, I used to love it, yeah. Like, that, that was on when, like, Herman's head was on, and, uh, yeah, so he, he in real life was, like, 25 when this, this came out, so... Yeah, um, he, uh, he he was billed as Corky Nemec until 1990. Didn't know that. Anyway, sorry, what were you saying, Randall? <laughs> oh, I was just gonna say, like, so basically they meet they meet up. He wants, to, and then uh, Harold wants to go to Stovington, which is so crazy to me because, like, I don't know. He just I get that he doesn't trust Stu entirely, but I can't imagine how much time that took. <laughs> like, well, here's the thing, like, like <laughs> Stu is clearly walking the entire time, and so when he walks up to, because I thought about that today. I imagine it's actually only like a few miles or something like that because they're, they 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 were already heading there, and I get the sense that because Stu was walking the entire time, didn't pick up a vehicle at all, and kind of strolls through and meets Glenn, that he must have been only walking for like maybe like a day or two or something like that. So like, yeah, it I could have been that right. far on like when they're actually on their like cool hogs. So I, I just cool imagine hogs. like there's <laughs> I do- probably like an hour or two to get there maybe. I do feel like, though, we needed at least one transitional scene to adjust to Harold being in biker gear. I agree. It is such a stark difference, like, from the last time we saw him. And I just needed that scene of of him dressing up like that. Or basically, there is a scene in the book. Um, Oh, yeah. In the book, book they go to a store and they, yeah, in the book they talk about. But, yeah, I think it's so funny because you're like, wait, you didn't look like this, like, last time I saw you, which was only supposed to have been a few hours ago <laughs> you yeah. know, and I, and he's, he's also lacking chivalry so he claims to love franny but 
he's wearing a helmet and she is not. It wouldn't <laughs> the polite thing be to offer the helmet to the girl that you had a crush on, but instead Harold wears it. So I don't know uh, how chivalrous he really how, is. How do you guys like, uh, we haven't really talked about his performance. I think he's personally pretty, I, I think he's pretty great myself, but uh, Ray Walson is, uh, is glad. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to talk about he's Corey Nemec again earlier. Or, uh, or <laughs> Stork. <laughs> Just no, no, Ray, if I had to rank the characters in this movie by performances, maybe we could do that towards the end somehow. But um, I actually think Ray Walston might be the MVP of this miniseries. I will say he, because I actually, and Mike, you're going to disagree with me on this. When I re- was rereading the book, I was like, God, I fucking hate Glenn. He's such an asshole. He's like, he's so pretentious. He's like, oh, <laughs> he, he just rambles on and on. But then rewatching the miniseries when obviously he doesn't have all the speeches he does in the book. I'm like, Oh no, I actually really like him a lot. And I like, and I think that has a lot to do with Ray Walson's grandfatherly demeanor. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because in the book, he's only supposed to be in his mid fifties. And I think Ray Walson is well past his mid fifties in the miniseries. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh yeah. Well, I do think is. that's interesting Definitely. because we, we do whine a lot about Greg Kinnear getting cast in that role. And the thing is Greg Kinnear probably is in his mid fifties. I mean, granted the guy looks like he's like in his mid thirties, but yeah, it's yeah. like, it's like, uh, but at the same time, I think that speaks to how much we identify Glenn with, uh, Ray Walston, who was like, yeah. you know what, like 80 years old when he did this. Like, he's another and, one where I, where I hear his voice when, no matter which version I'm reading of it. You know, right. And, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. I think he's great. I think he's so likable and there's like a goofiness to him that i think he really captures the essence of, of sort of like incredibly intellectual and smart and practical but also kind of like a bit of a doof and like when you first meet him he's singing the baby can you dig your man lyrics and he's getting the lyrics wrong and he's you know and he's kind of just uh, do you guys think that's yeah. because they hadn't recorded the song yet because he's not singing anything that sounds remotely like the song we hear in the first episode no i, I think oh, what if they like, didn't record it yet or something I he's think... just freestyling, but I, I also, but I think, yeah, he, he does a good job. And I've always thought Glenn is like a, uh, I, I like characters that are like hyper logical and pragmatic. Exactly. And yeah. he reads the emotions of other characters. Even there's that scene before Harold sees uh, Franny and Stu, where he's like whittling a stick or some shit. I don't even know what he's doing, <laughs> but Glenn goes up to him and he's like, Oh, we're going to go to town partner. And you want to come? And he's like, and, uh, you know, kind of like whiny, like, no, I don't want to go. And he's like, all right, suit yourself. You know, he's just like, I picked up on it. I'm not going to fucking mess with it. Does he, uh, <laughs> go Fle- back to whittling. Flieger, does Ray Watson, this remind you at all of our friend Elliot Fredland, uh, who I haven't seen. Since oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His voice he's is got, It's almost similar. like a Shakespearean, like, stage actor yeah. a little bit. He's a um, theater friend we have in Chicago. He's older. Old. He's probably about ray walston's age in this uh but yeah yeah i always think i'm like oh it's like elliot fredlund a little bit so ray walston was apparently 80 years old when he recorded this oh wow so he's like wow. literally 30 years older than, or 25 yeah. years older than glenn but but yeah. glenn does read pretty old in the book too I, he I, does yeah. he comes yeah. off as a person that's not only just well-traveled but also well-learned and when in those Mike, moments i feel like you want to be be him and they the i do <laughs> I, I i absolutely well, do because i always yeah, gravitated towards those type of characters growing up um, especially as teachers or, or, you know, as people to look up to because they, they seem to have the, the patience and wherewithal to step back for a second and go, all right, well, wait a second. There are a lot of puzzle pieces here. Like let's slowly put this together before we make a brash decision. And that's what he does. Like, and that's what yeah, I love Mike, so much. You're about. much more of a, yeah, I'm more of, you're much more of a Ralph. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. No, I am a Ralph, <laughs> especially the Ralph that's portrayed in this movie. Um, but wait, I got to jump in here because I need to, I, I feel like it needs to be discussed. Mike, uh, maybe it was last week or two weeks ago, you <laughs> yeah. did a Twitter post about Glenn Bateman that I, like, here's the thing. 
I am so fucking poisoned in my brain that genuine earnesty, like like earnestness, it it it, it it's like I I have. I have trouble processing it, and you po- and you are you are like that too. Sometimes we do so many weird bits. Oh, totally. So when you posted, you posted a thing basically being like, "In these times, think like Glenn Bateman," and you like posted this incredibly earnest <laughs> ode to yeah. Glenn Bateman in the stand, and you accompanied it with a photo of Ray yes. Walston as Glenn Bateman, and I couldn't figure out. This if is you exactly were what go- happened. So yeah, on March sixteenth, I, I found the tweet. We were- I, just, I couldn't <laughs> figure out if you were goofing or what, so I replied with Mike. This is the craziest fucking no, tweet I've ever seen. This is this is what you said. This is exactly what went down. Um, I go in these chaotic times. Be Glenn Bateman from Stephen King's The Stand. Mindful, <laughs> meditative, and achingly pragmatic. Don't forget your history as you study your present. The future will be all the better for it. And yes, it was earnest. It was the one fucking time I'm earnest on Twitter. And then, <laughs> and then you reply within seconds. What the fuck is this? <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then right afterwards, you go, Mike, this post is legitimately crazy. And when, you, and when you commented on it, I was like, all right. And then I retweeted on the Losers Club account just to piss you off. <laughs> And then, and then oh I go, God, and then I go, uh, we all go, uh, I, oh, then I, I comment going, ah, Mr. Underwood. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm dying. <laughs> I, no, I like love, I loved it, but it like, it's, it was just like, it was such a shockingly earnest post yeah. and it was coupled with, I think it's like, it's like the Tim and Eric thing. Like when they just post like a random photo of Billy Crystal, like yeah. when they're in the middle of doing something, just posting like that, that screenshot of Glenn Bateman stand oh where he God. just, he looks like so pensive and, and like thoughtful. And it just cracked me up because it's like, cause it, and it almost, and it, I guess just setting it against the fact that we're in the midst of a global pandemic and it's like, be like Ray Walston in the stand. Yeah, it's so it's, it's ridiculous, but it, it's also I know, I love it, it came from I a sense it. of real place. I also love Caffrey tweet, uh, replying. As a kid, I always wanted, wished Glenn Bateman's line from the book "Fuck You, East Texas" was in the movie because I wanted to hear Ray <laughs> Walston say something profane. And I said, "Ditto," especially on NBC. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I was when I first I read the book after watching the miniseries, and there it's it's that scene. I think it's in the third episode where they're on the they're in the amphitheater and they're talking about how society might function mm-hmm. again. And um, I I don't even remember what uh, Steve says in the book. He says something baldy, and then he go and then he goes, "Yeah, fuck you, Texas." But I just always imagine it as "fuck you, East Texas." Fuck you, East <laughs> Texas. <laughs> like great. Well, that was always funny to me as a kid. Like just picturing like Glenn. Glenn Bateman, Glendon Bateman, which is his full name, uh, Glennon Bateman swearing like that. Oh man, I'm I, sorry. I was like dying, just like because I, I saw that exchange, which made me laugh. It's ridiculous. Too, that just yeah. you, just you guys like recounting it. Oh man, it was so fu- so fucking funny. We have we haven't <laughs> talked a lot about. Um, well, or, sorry. What else about Franny and Stu? I know. I feel like they're only in. We only really get, I guess, like three scenes with them in this, right? Like the. But the Franny, Stu, I think Glenn stuff. I think the big one is when we when. I think Stu goes and sees Mother Abigail again, but then he's transported into the hospital again. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we get to revisit Stovington. Oh, just great. Uh, yeah. yeah, which I think is a pretty effective sequence. Um, totally. Uh, especially that shot of the patient on the ground who, I can't remember what he says, but all this like blood pours out of his mouth. And it's actually like, it's I think they're basically saying, saying, like, it's oh, they're saying stay away. 
Yeah, well, there's flag, but then so the flag says uh, stay away from her East Texas. Yeah. And but then what I think is so it's I actually think it's a pretty solid, effective little sequence. The one part that makes me laugh because I think it's so grotesque when he sees the patient who has all the blood like come out of his mouth. It's, you know, very kind of like old school horror fact that I really I really enjoy and find kind of grotesque and gruesome. But but then it's the. There's two there's two or three moments in the stand where this happens, and I feel like it happens because uh, maybe Mick Garris had filmed the reaction to the moment before he knew what the moment was. So when, after Stu looks down and sees this guy who is blood pouring out of his mouth and is, like, screaming at him, it just cuts back to Stu, like, in the long shot, and he just kind of wanders away slowly, <laughs> you know, from yeah. it. Like, he doesn't react appropriately, which just makes me feel like, like, when they filmed it, maybe they didn't have that moment in mind yet and they added it later and they inserted it in but it's always very funny to me when like something really scary happens and then like it's just like okay then it's gone you know Mm -hmm. and they just keep walking and because there's a moment later that i know i've talked to you guys about which is when harold's in his dream and he sees the dead guy the dead zombie thing in the car and then it says like y'all you're a real wild card or you know you're a real card aren't you and then like after uh harold says yeah wild card the thing in the in the car just like <laughs> lowers its head again yeah like goes back to sleep it's, it's like, like when such you, it's, a weird it's like moment. if you were on a like a dark ride like at disney like haunted mansion or mr toad or something like that <laughs> right you go past it and it's scary but then you look back at it and it's just like gone back reset to sleep yeah, yeah like reset it and you're like oh that's not that scary it's just like an know. animatronic it's a very funny moment to me because it, there's just this sort of disconnect where clearly there was maybe just a lack of synergy on the part of like maybe garris didn't have that effect ready yet and didn't know what it would be so so sinise is reacting to something but he doesn't know what it is yet so it's just it's very comical to me but i actually do think that that return to the hospital is smart and it, it captures what king does so well in his writing which is mm-hmm. uh you know king kind of pinpoints moments of trauma within his characters very specific ones and they haunt them like uh throughout and sort of these little uh bursts of memory throughout their head and i know that happens in the book with stovington and stew and then you know even just dr sleep which we talked about recently uh just that little moment where uh the woman that he's sleeping with her child almost like eats some cocaine and then uh uh and and Danny's like haunted by that the rest of the book and I love the way that King does that where he takes that little moment of trauma and it 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 invades his dreams and his thoughts and it mutates and it changes and and King's so good at doing that about how track like tracking how that uh trauma and anxiety sort of follows you and uh I think that's a really cool moment where he captures that sort of literary choice uh here on screen so yeah nice nice scene nice scene yeah. I was I was gonna say should we have, we haven't really talked we've talked about some scenes at her her house uh, but what about M- Ruby D is Mother Abigail uh, how, how do y'all feel she's another character that's a little dicey I think just in terms <laughs> yeah. of twenty first century the she's been accused of being the magical Negro um, type character which I I know in the book it comes off a little bit better because there's actually quite a bit of skepticism around her in the book but in this it, going back to the Christian Hallmarky thing people follow her pretty um just kind of automatically almost so she feels a little it does feel a little caricature to me in this i don't know if y'all the the scene i mentioned i hate and it's in the book too is the uh then nick says he doesn't believe in god and where she's like oh that's okay nick because he believes in you i'm like Ugh, oh barf. god like, i would not follow anyone who, who said that to me but um yeah and- but i think given the apocalypse situation the fact that nick is kept alive i think it is proof that god believes in him 
Um, and I say this is not a religious person, but I actually found that pretty moving, that line, as cheesy as that is. Oh, yeah. um, oh, yeah, you see, you're not a religious person, Fleer. Well, that sounds like a Baptist to me, what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it is funny, though, because, like, yeah, I'm not, like no, I said, no, not a religious yeah. person, but it is funny that this story is so just entwined with yeah. good, evil, God, the devil, or, you know, devil's minions. And it's funny when I was watching the miniseries, because, yeah, there is a lot of, you know, jumping to future chapters, they when some characters are going to be sacrificed and they're like, we, we go to a better place. Like we go by his guiding hand and stuff like that. Um, but I had me rooting for the religion. You know, I actually liked the battle of good and evil. So I think mother Abigail really represents that, that pure genuine good. Like she's basically Moses, right? She's leading the people to the promised land, but she's never going to really be able to enter it. And, you know, she has the sin of pride, which Moses had as well. And I, and I like Ruby D. I mean, Ruby D is an amazing actor, and I think does do... Once again, I think it's more for Mina she being written a little broadly. Um, but I do think she... And I... Hey, to everyone's credit involved with this miniseries, I thought that's how old she was when I was younger. I'm like, oh, damn, she's old. Um, but, she, but she obviously wasn't. They had to no. make her up pretty Could, pretty heavily. I will say I'm a little disappointed that we didn't get the, uh, you know, 80-minute sequence where she goes from one farm to another to, to <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, make chicken for everyone. Um, oh, man. It would have been a really great scene, and I think we would have been able to <laughs> fully understand the Mother Abigail character a little bit more. It would have been a dilly of a scene. Yeah. Now well, there is, the, oh, go there is it, go a moment it. here. Well, I'll just say there is a moment here, like, that resonates in the same way about how flag is like you will be high in my ranks you know like there is the question like wait like why is she the chosen one Mm -hmm. and she just seems so comfortable with that you know like uh i feel like there's the struggle in the book where you know she realizes that she is this magnet for um you know this this holy war and there is some investigation into like why like how this happened to mm-hmm. some degree mm-hmm. and here it's just sort of like she is that you know and you don't really the closest thing we get to a moment where she's a character and not a plot device is when they leave at the end and um she actually looks back at her house as they drive away that's actually yeah. to me the one moment where i actually saw her as a human being you know mm-hmm. because and you i'd say in the in the uh, book you know you get a lot more like even that that chicken thing is is an exhausting passage in the book like i hate it i hate it and i and i remember the backstory of her i struggled with but i think i liked it more on my recent reread but uh but you know there you really do get a sense of her as a human being and and this sort of elevation into spiritual figure and here we don't really get that she sort of exists as a spiritual figure from moment one she doesn't feel like a person even though we do get a scene of her talking about her diarrhea or whatever about yeah they have that line what is, what is it oh thank you lord for the fine bm i had that this morning those prunes really did the trick i'm like okay we do i don't need my introduction to her to be her coming out of a fucking outhouse which is like a but like, king loves that i don't get it like what is he so weird. he has this like weird fetish with like shitting like that, people always ask us there was a bag of bones recently where someone asked like well if you get an interview with stephen king what's the, what are you going to ask him i legit am going to ask him about his like his obsession with shit like it is in all of his books <laughs> I, I, I'm, oh, I am going don't waste the opportunity no, I'm not, no, I don't think anyone has ever asked him this question and I think I think for good reason no I think I'm it's, sure he'd love to answer it I think he would I think it would probably tickle you know like tickle him if we asked I would, him I would love if him. you I would love if he comes on the podcast because he's you know it would it would be like the equivalent of of you two going on you talking you to me 
I love it. We get him on there and, and out of the gate, he, he's like, yeah, I'm real excited to be here guys. And then, like, first thing you ask him is about the shit. And then he's just like, oh really? That's what we're going to do. And just like hangs up the phone. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just like, he's like, oh, that's all you got. You have a whole fucking podcast dedicated to you and talk about shit. <laughs> It would literally would also... be like a, a Ricky Gervais uh, TV show. Yeah. We'd get him. I mean, my, like, no. one of my favorite short stories of his, of, of his, uh, his is the one where the guy gets trapped in overturned porta potty. It's literally just describing like shit uh, oh. going into him and everything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but he does have a yeah. He well, he, he's. Um, I, I mean, he's I will scared. say, I think he's old, legit old scared people, of it. Like old people do have a thing with shit. Like my grandparents, like no joke, are like very. When my grandfather was alive. Um, him and my grandmother would like check in every morning and be like, Oh, like you have a BM this morning. I'm like, God, God, stop it. I'm trying to eat my, my, my French toast. And you're talking about trying to eat my colon blow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it's what's good. It's like, we just don't, you know, I mean, I guess we've seen her in dreams, but the really, the first time we see her in real life, in real time, she's literally coming out of an outhouse. You're like, wow, what a great introduction for the savior of humanity. Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. But it just it just reminds me that scene. I, so I did a play when I was in college. I acted in a play called Tally's Folly. It's 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 very uh, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's uh, very good. Uh, Lanford Wilson. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I but I started the play with a, a ten minute monologue to the audience, like where it's first person address, and that's what that scene reminds me of. Because like like I said, it has that community theater feel, like the stage, like it does look like there's a backdrop there and that they brought in this fake corn or whatever and um and she just kind of exits the outhouse and she's like well like it's just like how one of these like one-man shows or something would begin is like she just comes uh, out it's like waiting for it's waiting for guffman like the the uh clifford or uh is it clifford arquette the the narrator who yeah yeah oh hi i didn't see you there i'm just eating my beans beans. i love that it's so funny and like um but it it just it strikes me like she's like oh i had a good bm thank god for those prunes and she's like oh hello i didn't see you there (laughs) it's so funny to me and so it's like, uh, and then she like sits on the rock of uh, the porch on a rocking chair and then, you know, so on. And that scene does get a little bit interesting because she, you know, flag is in the corn. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And then we get the. I actually the, do like that. Yeah. Yeah. Then we get the classic. What a friend we have. And which is I do. I do legit like that. That's which is something we love to quote. But hey, maybe uh, we just maybe we just start her on the porch and she's just gazing out on the corn instead of hearing her talk about prunes and her, <laughs> and her, her shit her um, <laughs> so i think i think uh so it this part ends with basically nick uh tom have arrived with susan stern and then some guy and some little girl <laughs> so. i think that's i think that's is that dick ellis maybe dick ellis isn't this i like I said dick ellis chad norris and brad kitchener are are, they are the Whitney Horgan, Heck Drogan, and Barry Drogan yeah. of, of, of the Free Zone. The three characters who are like, you can interchange very easily. Right. And uh, yeah, so they're all, they all show up as well. And then we get sort of this meal. We get this sense that, okay, now we're going to go to Colorado. They load up her, her car, or they load up the car and put her in it. And, um, and But yeah, we get that moment where it's like we start to confront sort of the spiritual aspect. And and there is that sense here when Abigail has that line where she's basically like, it's okay. God believes in you. It is. I think I get what, what you're saying Dan, which is the general concept that, um, Oh, sweetie, you know, 
I, that's very quaint and sweet that you don't believe in God, but like clearly God is real here, you know? And so, um, and it almost feels like the miniseries, like refusing to engage with the, with sort of the spiritual complexity of it, which again is hard to convey, like even in six hours, but it's, uh, that and then the Christian aspect is obviously something we'll talk about more because especially once you get into the finale, um, the fourth part, it starts to become very blatant and almost aggressive. And so, um, it's, it's interesting stuff, and it sets us up for part three, which I'll always remember part three. I was so confused when I put in the tape uh, that, you know, the second videotape that started it. And I was convinced that I had missed, like, I had a missing tape or something, or that I didn't mm -hmm. watch all of the second part. Because it opens with Stu and Harold and Franny and all them uh, operating on somebody. And there's, like, four characters we've never yeah. seen before. Like Dana's and I, there, the judge yeah, is there, I think. And I yeah. remember just being like, who are these people? And I was convinced convinced that i had missed a big chunk of the story and i still feel like that and we're adults like it, it's, it's i know it's pretty jarring <laughs> like uh yeah, yeah it's like there's a lot of time and a lot of road that you got to navigate but that that transition is to me just a, a touch a touch jarring but is, but yeah is there oh. anything in the mini this this episode specifically um i, I know I know we're seeing more parallels in the first episode because it deals more with everyone getting the plague and society breaking down and all that. But was there anything in here that you guys are equating or seeing as analogous to the, the real world right now? Um, I mean, I, I guess I didn't. Yeah. I, I think it's the first part that really resonates. Obviously yeah. like we, cause you get into all the government stuff in the first part and the Starkey stuff. And I think that's the stuff that, especially based on last week's episode was something we were discussing you know a when, lot because that's the stuff i think impacts us most uh here basically that whole part of the country is obsolete like it's gone yeah. i think i think the general i think maybe the idea of walking through central park and it being empty uh and then maybe hearing like a gunshot in the distance and everything and in this sort of weird isolated um you know, world, I think that's probably the thing that resonated most for me, just because it is weird to see so many streets empty, you know, mm. especially when we live mm. in Chicago, which is, you know, a, you know, crowded city. And I see so, so few people when I am out. And, but the thing is like, my wife is telling me that crime is, is like up right now in a weird way. Like, uh, Ooh, cool. yeah, there's, there's like a band, there's a band we all like called Whitney and they actually, just oh, they got mugged, right? yeah, they got like mugged here in Chicago. And, uh, like when they were just on their street. And so there is this, there is sort of a, an anxiety, at least around that aspect of it, is that there is this, and you know, we talked last week, we're like, well, when's the looting going to start, you know? And that's, I think, something that is a, is a general anxiety for me. But the idea that by the time this starts, you know, the idea of got the government, the army, those things have more or less dropped off. And uh, thank God we're not there yet. <laughs> so, yeah, know, there there are a couple of things we'll recently there. that that have certainly uh, flagged me as uh, you know very um, big parallels to the stand. Uh, the whole hydroxychlorine um, thing that, oh, yeah. that, that that Trump flu has buddy. Been trying to parade in has definitely felt like per oh, the flu buddy thing. Because uh, spoiler alert, guys, it's not going to help you. I was prescribed that stuff last year. I tried it for literally 24 hours before my eyelids felt like they were going to thin out and fall off. So whatever you do, don't take that drug. It's not a good one. Um, and it flares up psoriasis, like injecting adrenaline into something. It, it literally just ejects adrenaline into your psoriasis, which makes you flare up even more. And for the most part, we all have some sort of uh, level of psoriasis. Uh, you know, uh, it's, a very, it's pretty common. So if you don't really want that to get worse, 
don't take it. Um, but yeah, so that, that stuff really certainly um, hit home. But yeah, yeah it's it, a lot of the, the headlines I've been reading on CNN lately um, have felt like the first and second part of this miniseries, especially I, like I was I reading today, the, like, uh, oh, there's like a they, drive-in uh, funerals now that they have that I was reading about that was trending on um, CNN today. And that just felt like something that would be in like one of the revolving chapters. Um, what do they call, mm-hmm. what does he call them in, in, in the, in, uh, the st- in the uncut version? Um, I can't remember. It, now. They're like, like these like, long uh, digressions of like shit, like all these yeah. little portraits around the, the, isn't it called, isn't it called like the rest or something like that? Or the rest of them or the, re- I, I can't remember. Yeah. Can't oh remember. yeah. Yeah. I forget, yeah. yeah. Are those left behind camera? But I, I actually thought, and, and I, I do want to make it clear. I, I, in no way, shape, or form, think this is the equivalent equivalent of Captain Trips, and that's going to be as bad and everything like that, like at all. But the the stuff with like the the Bengal tigers getting at the Bronx Zoo today mm-hmm. that made me think of the Central Park scene. Um, and in the in the book, there's um, in the book Larry sees all, all the dead animals at at the Central Park Zoo, um, and he sees most of them, including the lions, have uh, they've just died of starvation. But there's like a monkey that's gotten the disease, and then the other. Uh, the other thing that so this is from, also from a book scene, but the whole thing with Boris Johnson today, mm-hmm. insisting he was fine, insisting he was fine, insisting he was fine, and then obviously he's in the ICU right now. That reminded me of in the um, that reminded me of in the book where uh, the pre- they don't say who the president is, but he's like on live TV coughing and he keeps insisting that he's okay. Like that, all the bureaucratic kind of stuff is really, uh, yeah, re- really is has eerie parallels to me. Yeah, the other thing that I would say, and the, this has been. I think for the most part debunked, but there was a trending headline going around about like parks being used as mass burial sites, uh, which is a really unnerving, uh, especially like in New York specifically. I do believe that that news was uh, more or less misinterpreted uh, or, you know, sensationalized, but you know, the whole concept of the idea of, you know, bring out your dead, like kind of uh, is, is something that I think is sort of terrifying and, um, you know, actually could be some kind of reality because we are going to see a lot more deaths before this is all over. And uh, yeah, so that is going to be, I think that's sort of a general anxiety that I felt a little bit like just, you know, especially, uh, I mean, that, that relates maybe a bit more to the first part, but you know, it is sort of that empty central Mm -hmm. park that sort of haunts me, especially Mm -hmm. because they were able to shoot there and you see the Plaza hotel in the background and everything. It's one that, yeah, the idea and the idea too, that even though, hopefully who knows but in, in the next few weeks even if the flat the curve starts to flatten like in order to get there thousands and thousands more people have to die like they're just like just going into this week knowing and being told yeah it's going to be a shitty week a lot of fucking people are going to die which is um once again i don't think it's on we're not doing captain trips numbers but it's st- still a lot and it's yeah it's it's really freaky what, what about what about you fleeger especially because we talked about that last week a lot too. um i've been eating a lot of apples so my stomach hurts <laughs> oh <laughs> like hurts. tom cullen Oh, have you been going to the, the, yeah, the, I love that he, the diddly dad? He has pictures. free run of the town and he eats a bunch of apples. Like, he would eat candy if he had free access. Um, but I guess that does tie back a little bit to the Stephen King, uh, you know, bowel movement. Because he's, I, I, if you eat apples, do you get backed up or is it the other way? Uh, no, I think you shit a lot if you eat apples, right? I mean, I eat a lot yeah, of apples. I guess I, apples I, are I very healthy yeah, So, like, as a kid, I, have BMs. I used to get sick from them. I have BMs that Mother oh, Abigail would envy. Every morning. <laughs> oh, God. The size of a child's wrist. No um, prints necessary. Anyway, 
No, but, but I, I have been thinking a lot about, like, the parallels, and I think, yeah, the first two chapters are kind of where we're at now, and I get a little nervous about the third chapter because I didn't know that stat about crime going up, mm -hmm. and that's actually pretty shocking, right? Because it's, you know, society is sort of just this mutually agreed thing that we all kind of participate in, but if it starts unraveling, it goes fast. Um, so I'm not saving up to buy a gun just yet, <laughs> but... Definitely crafting swords at home. There was, there was another there's another really jarring um, story that I saw today that was kind of um, very Kingian and something that you would see in, again, one of those chapters that we were discussing in the stand is a lot of doctors are already starting to write their wills um, because they're pretty much convinced that they're going to die uh, throughout this, which is just... Oof. Yeah. But, well, and because, too, I think what even, even though the even though most people who get it survive, I think with healthcare workers, specifically doctors, I think because they're getting in such high concentrated doses, it's mm -hmm. just like, and they're just reintroducing themselves to mutations, exposures and all that. So, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, Fleeger, the other question we asked last week, or I think Mike asked of us is, would you, would you go to, uh, the free Boulder free zone or Vegas? Um, I'd like to think I would go to the free zone. Um, but I would, maybe want to be a spy like i don't know if i'm good enough to be in the free zone you could go fuck lloyd <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly just wear the sexiest lingerie where would you um, all be because if that's i mean i don't know I, I it's in this current moment i guess if you were in the first chapter flieger where do you think you would go and then if you're in the second chapter after all this how far the world has gone where do you think you'd go so like i mean definitely the motorcycle right away i'm not exactly sure that where i mean if i didn't have that guidance of mother abigail saying come to me i probably would head somewhere like colorado anyway just because it's sort of it has a lot of natural barriers like it's hard to invade that part of the world because of the mountains there's a lot of fresh water rising sea levels aren't going to get you so i think i would start heading west um, but yeah, I, I think Mother Abigail be if I had dreams about her and someone else was like, I have that dream too. I'd be like, all right, this is legit. I'm gonna go to her. I almost wonder if I would just go to um, I don't know, like South Carolina or somewhere that's just not either of them. Like you guys sort that shit out. Like I'm not gonna get I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm just gonna hang out until you uh, figure it out. Well, and the book also flat um flags troops. They're like all along the West Coast. They're in Vegas, but they're also in California. Um, and then all the, no, uh, um, what other state, where, what's the state that the judge ends up going to like Idaho or something? I can't remember, mm -hmm. but like in the book, they have like sort of more of like that whole region taken over. Um, but yeah, I said last week that I would, I was like, oh, I would go to, I would go to Vegas cause I don't like all mother Abigail's God talk. But then I, I get, they all made fun of me and said, I'm, I'm too wholesome. I would totally go to the free zone, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I guess, I guess I just want to be a bad boy at heart. So <laughs> So, yeah. That's any outlaw drugs and alcohol though in the free zone? Yeah, uh, no, no. In the free zone, there are drugs and alcohol. In um, Vegas, they or not, sorry, that's what I meant in Vegas. Yeah, Vegas, yeah, they outlaw, outlaw drugs there. there. Well, and that's something that the, um, the that the book gets at that the movie doesn't at all is that like Vegas ends up being pretty high functioning in a way that the free zone isn't. The free zone, they're sort of sitting on their asses a little bit, and there's there's like more disorder and everything. But I'll I'll save that for uh for whoever's on episode three. Yeah, I would I go to Vegas just to go see. Uh, Chris Angel, yeah. <laughs> who would definitely Chris, stay around. Is Chris Angel still performing? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that would dictate it. Yeah, yeah, he'd probably be like, uh, "I have a special guest, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, his name is Mr. Randall Flag." Uh, <laughs> give each other high fives, and you know, Chris Angel recently came. Well, I don't know. I don't know if he ended up 
uh, uh, coming to campus or not because if it was before everything shut down. But Chris Angel, I'm on the you know the UT concert email list for whatever shows coming, and uh, I got an email. The whole school got an email about Chris Angel, uh, and it was Chris Angel unplugged. Now I don't know what that means, but I was I, as far as I knew, he wasn't a musician, or maybe he is a musician. I don't know, but uh, yes, Chris Angel unplugged. So I don't know what kind of tricks he was doing, but uh, he's a man of many talents. They just play acoustic version of Rob Zombie songs when he like, cuts himself in half. Steampunk chainsaw. I think so, I think that's a good point, though. I think I probably would just go off somewhere else. I'd be like, you know, whatever. I can go literally anywhere in the world right now. Why the hell would I go anywhere where society is? Like, just go do your own thing. Go to Canada or something. Yeah. So, any final thoughts on part two of the Stand miniseries? I just want to reiterate, reiterate that even as the miniseries continues to get a little bit cheesier, which it certainly does as as it progresses, I still love it. I still stand for the stand. I stand for Corn Nemec. I stand for like Adam Stork <laughs> and, and and Peter and Peter Van Norden. I, 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 I oh, in, in, all, in all seriousness, I do love this miniseries, and uh, it's a pleasure revisiting it because I, I watch it every few years. I love it. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, yeah, this was fun. We're going to be back next week with our thoughts on part three. Jen from the Horror Virgin is going to is going to join us. And you know what? It's time to get a little estrogen in here. Uh, we got to hear we got to hear what the ladies think about the apocalypse. Um, and I think the third part will be good because there's a lot of Franny content. And mm-hmm. so it'll be a, a good time. Thanks again for you guys for supporting our Patreon and for supporting us in general. We really appreciate it. So stay tuned and uh, I think let's say it. Long days. Days. Pleasant, pleasant nights. Nice. 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 <laughs> Bye. It all. That's a good I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends.